When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson. Always glad to have you back for Scripture Study. Last week, we had a little squeaking in the background uh, of the puppies that our dog just had. And if there's any background noise this week, it's going to be from the thunderstorm that's taking place right now. Uh, so if there's the pitter-patter of rain, I've noticed that hail is falling as well. Welcome to November in Utah. Uh, so it's just the, in some ways, maybe this is perfectly appropriate. Uh, it would have been, it would have worked great last week with Joel and some of the signs of the times. We'll get some signs of the times today in Amos and Obadiah as well. Uh, and so hopefully they just, they, ho hopefully the thunder crashes right on cue. I remember my first year of teaching seminary, uh, the seminary was being uh, remodeled. And so they kicked us out into a nearby chapel and as low man on the totem pole, uh, student teaching, they put me on the stage which was fine, uh, but I had a special needs student that was just so much fun, just a great young man, uh, but he loved to play with the stage lights. Uh, and in the middle of class, all of a sudden, things would go dark and all the red lights would turn on, uh, or things would go dark and the blue lights would turn on. And, and I just tried to roll with the punches, and if the red lights went out and the red lights turned on, it, I'd somehow we'd just find, like, and then the adversary always comes and tries to shake our faith or to, to tempt us towards things. And the, the students always had a blast with whatever stage cues our, our special needs friend was giving us. Uh, so maybe we'll have to roll with some of those punches today with audio in the background. I've learned as part of the challenge of just being a garage band uh, and uh, filming out of my home and right directly underneath my children's upstairs bathroom. And I had no idea that toilet flushing sounded like Niagara Falls. Uh, or dogs barking in the background, or people coming and going, oh well, thank you for putting up with, <laughs> with uh, all regular life in the Halverson home. I am grateful for your, your patience and for your prayers for me. This has been an, an incredible year in the Old Testament, but an incredibly intense one as well, time-wise. There's no book of scripture that even gets close to the amount of text that we have to cover. And since we decided early on to actually go for it and go chapter by chapter, and in many places verse by verse, I know this has been oh, an eternal amount of time spent together in Scripture. So thank you for hanging with me and enduring it well. I'll add to that, uh, this past semester I made the switch from Institute at the University of Utah to the Religion Department at BYU. And it's been an amazing transition, bittersweet, uh, pros and cons, advantages, disadvantages. But uh, it's been incredibly busy with grading and, and testing and all the kinds of expectations that BYU puts upon its students and upon its professors uh, with Publisher Parish and research and writing and all those kinds of things. I'm grateful for your prayers and for the patience and long-suffering of my family that have allowed me to keep up with this to the degree I've been able to keep up with it. Uh, long days and short nights, uh, but also feeling the Spirit of God keep me sane and keep me going, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the chance to study these things. I'm also grateful for 
incredible students wherever I've been. In fact, many of my students currently now at BYU said, you know, my grandma told me I had to take your class. Or, oh, my dad commutes with you every day. Or, oh, my mom loves your, pod your podcast. Or, and a few even that said, oh, I listened to you throughout my whole mission. Thanks for getting us through COVID. Uh, the longer lessons, the better. We didn't have a whole lot of else to do. Uh, and it's uh, to you grandmas and to you parents that sent your kids my way. Thank you, because they're amazing. Uh, my students at the U are amazing. My students at the Y are amazing. And those that have an unshaken connection, it's just been fun. Uh, I hope that they're letting you know uh, how grateful I am that you've raised such amazing children and grandchildren. It's an honor to have them in class and an honor to have you in class <laughs> here online. Uh, we're going to be studying Amos and Obadiah today. And these are amazing little books of scripture too. Smaller than last week. Yeah, I am grateful that as we approach the end of the Old Testament, it's kind of a cool down lap as far as length of lesson is concerned. Uh, the fact we got through Joel last week in only an, in under an hour is pretty amazing. And Hosea only took us, what, two and a half, give or take? Well, Amos is shorter than Hosea, and Obadiah, as the shortest book of the Bible, or of the Old Testament, I should say, is, is shorter than, than uh, Joel, obviously. Uh, but power-packed with incredible things, especially the book of Amos. I love this little book. Uh, as I spent this week studying it again, ah, it's amazing. And... So much more than just what we saw Amos 4 in, uh, in our missions. As a missionary, you know Amos 3.7 and you know Amos 8.11 and pretty much that's it. Uh, Amos 3.7, that God won't do anything without telling the prophets. And Amos 8.11, there's going to be a famine in the land, a.k.a. an apostasy. And those are great verses, uh, but we typically pull them out of context and cherry pick them to be able to proof text some principle we're teaching in the mission field. Uh, they're, they're useful for that, but uh, in context, they're amazing. And to see what Amos is doing from start to finish, I love this little book of Scripture. I really do. Uh, to put him in his place historically, to contextualize him, he is a prophet roughly the same time period as Hosea that we met last week and Isaiah that we spent a month with a few months ago. He is a prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah, but primarily teaches to the northern kingdom of Israel. And again, if he's, if he's prophesying roughly at the same time period as Hosea and, and Isaiah, then what's on the horizon? Assyria. The Assyrian Empire is on the move. It is spreading west and south to take over the known world. And Israel will be one of those kingdoms to fall. Judah will barely make it, thanks to Isaiah's help and the people's repentance and righteousness. But not so lucky up in the north, because not so righteous or repentant. Uh, so Amos is going to be trying to change things, trying to help the people in the north see what they're doing wrong and how they can change, in hopes of avoiding the Assyrian onslaught. Uh, whereas Hosea was living out that brutal object lesson we saw last week, and while Isaiah is his weaving tapestries of incredible poetry and image and metaphor, Amos has a different approach because he has a different background. He, well, put it this way, Isaiah is a courtroom prophet. He's Hezekiah's right-hand man. He must have been incredibly well-educated to be that eloquent in his poetry. Whereas Amos was a poor man's prophet because he was both a prophet and a poor man himself. He describes himself as a herdsman and as a gatherer of sycamore fruit He's just trying to 
scratch out an existence for himself and for his family. But as a result, he knows what the majority of people in Israel and Judah are going through. He gets it. He's, he gets them because he's one of them. And to be on their level, this is condescension in some ways, that Christ would come down to be like us. And from our lowly state, to try to help us learn how to navigate life. Amos is going to do the same thing. And he's going to cry repentance, especially along economic lines, to those that are oppressing the poor and the needy. His name itself means one supported. And he is supported by God and by not much else. Trying to cry repentance to a people that owe the poor more support than they're giving them. Uh, I, I love his background. I love his approach. What he lacks in educated eloquence, he makes up for in raw reality. And if we can open our hearts and minds to the things he's going to teach us, the book of Amos can be life-changing. It's meant to be. So pray that that will happen to us in the next few hours. As far as historical context is concerned, look at Amos chapter 1, verse 1, and he gets it, gives it to us right off the bat. He says, The words of Amos who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So how's that for context? My name is Amos. I'm a herdsman among fellow herdsmen. I'm from a small village in Judah named Tekoa. So again, poor, living among the poor. And I'm seeing things concerning Israel, the northern kingdom, even though I'm from the south. And I'm crying repentance. It happens during the days of Uzziah in the south, Judah, and Jeroboam in the north, in Israel. And the reign of Uzziah in the south was when Isaiah's ministry began. And then it stretches 40 years on uh, through Hezekiah's reign and Manasseh's reign as well. Uh, and so Amos is going to be prophesying just before Isaiah takes up the baton. Now, one thing you need to know about Uzziah and Jeroboam, based on what we saw of them in the book of 2 Kings, this is a period, these are long reigns in both south and north. And it's a time of relative peace, to be honest. I mean, it's the calm before the storm, because Assyria is on its way. But if you're in charge for a long, long time and can kind of have your, uh, your, your plans rolled out, and if there's not enemies bearing down on you and using up all of your people and your, and your substance uh, your, uh, in, to pay the army uh, or to get destroyed by an enemy, then typically what can happen, this is going to be a period of relative peace. And so it's territorial expansion. It's economic growth. It's a time of prosperity. But unfortunately, usually times of prosperity are also times of disparity where the rich are the ones getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Uh, it's a time of economic oppression. It is, it's the pride cycle. And things are going pretty well. And so they become prideful and oppress the poor and stop living the second great commandment and eventually stop living the first great commandment. And that's when destruction comes next. Well, here comes Assyria. That's what we're seeing go on during this period. Verse 2, Amos says, The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the habitations of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. The Lord will roar. Remember that imagery. We're going to see talk of lions later on. 
but the roaring of this lion of the tribe of Judah is meant for the entire house of Israel. If he's talking from Zion and from Jerusalem, that's southern kingdom where, I, where Amos grew up. But his message is for everyone. The top of Carmel, that's the north. Okay, That's the kingdom of Israel. But it also helps establish the importance of Judah for the whole house of Israel. And why? Because Jerusalem's there. And why Jerusalem's so important? Because the temple is there. This is, is the key to all of this. And so to understand the source of this message, as well as its target, God is, the Lord is roaring from his lair, from his house in Jerusalem. And he's trying to call the northern kingdom to attention, to understand what they need to be doing. Now, Amos' initial approach is an interesting one, because he doesn't talk to Israel first. In fact, he talks to Israel last, but he knows exactly what he's doing. He is going to cry repentance first to all the surrounding nations. In some ways, this is going to let Israel feel like they're off the hook. It's like, oh no, I have messages of woe and warning to everybody else. It's all your neighbors. They're the ones doing wrong. And you can picture Israel patting themselves on the back going, oh yes, those Edomites and those Ammonites and those Moabites. Yeah, they need to repent. I can't believe all those horrible things they're doing. But what is Amos doing? He's reeling them in. Oh, he's a herdsman, all right, and a very wise one. And while Israel hears what's going wrong in, among all their neighbors, and is probably shaking their heads woefully and thinking, oh yeah, they've got major things to repent of. Well, once they've passed judgment on others, and then Amos springs his rhetorical trap and lets them know, oh, I've been leading up to you this whole time then hopefully you can be convicted by your own conscience, realizing you're guilty of the same things you were condemning your neighbors for. Okay, It's amazing how he does it. So watch this unfold in chapter 1 and chapter 2. His first target are the Syrians. And so he says in verse 3 through 5, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, that's the capital of Syria, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will break also the bar of Damascus, and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon, and him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into captivity unto Ker, saith the Lord. Now that, those three verses, three through five, is the sum total of his warning to the people of Syria. If you remember, Isaiah did something similar when he had these burdens to Edom and to Moab and Ammon and to Babylon and others. Jeremiah did something similar. I mean, this is the prophet to the world. Now, Jehovah is not a provincial deity like everybody else's little provincial pantheons. And so, yes, God's prophet means he's the prophet to the world. And this is his message to the Syrians. But notice what he, the way he rolls it out, because this is going to be the pattern he follows in all of these other oracles, all these other messages of woe. He'll mention them by name. For this, it's Damascus, the capital of Syria. Uh, he'll warn them about fire as the consequence. Uh, what you're doing is going to bring on, I mean, you're, you're playing with matches, people, and you're going to get burned. And the, and the fire will eventually spread from Assyria when they come down to conquer everything in its path. It's a forest fire, and you're up next unless you repent. And what do you need to repent of? Typically, these are all social sins. These primarily are sins against humanity. 
they are, they are, they're breaking the second great commandment and not loving their neighbor as themselves. They are, should be their brother's keeper, but they aren't. So in this case, they are threshing Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. Now, Gilead was on the northeast of Israel, far side of the Jordan River, but that was part of the territory that, that Joshua conquered on the way, and then that Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh wanted that east side. That's, that's Gilead, and so it's Israelite territory. It's kind of annexed to the Promised Land. But because it's closest to Syria, then it's easiest for the Syrians to pick on the people there. In fact, to thrash them, or as, said, as it's said here, to thresh them to tear them apart in search of grain that you can take away from them. This is oppression of the poor. And again, threshing is an agricultural metaphor. So it would have made perfect sense to Amos, a, a herdsman and, and farmer gatherer. And also it would have made sense to the people that were, being, that were suffering along those lines. It's a message to the poor because it's the poor that are, that are being threshed here. One last thing to notice as far as this pattern is concerned, because he'll do it over and over and over. There are seven different kingdoms he, he talks about before he aims at his eighth, which is Israel. And they all begin with this idea of, well, there's three transgressions there in Damascus. Oh, actually four. And what's interesting about that approach, it's as if the iniquity is multiplying as we speak. That he's looking at the, the wickedness of Damascus, of Syria, and he says, oh yeah, there's three major things you need to repent. Oh, there's a fourth. Yep. You're getting worse. So we need to stop this. We need to nip it in the bud, or we're going to get on to five and six and seven, and where will it end? So again, rhetorically, it's masterful what, what Amos is doing to, to try to nip this in the bud. He'll do again in verse six through eight. This is his second message of woe, and it's to the Philistines. He says, thus saith the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza, or for four. Okay, Gaza was a city of the Philistines that were multiplying iniquity from three to four. And because of that, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. What did they do wrong? They carried away captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. So they're taking refugees and sending them on, passing the buck to the next kingdom. Get them out of here. We'll, we'll captivate some people. We'll deliver them to the Edomites. And as a result... I will send a fire on the wall of Gaza, there plain with matches too, which shall devour the palaces thereof. Think about the poor refugees, the captives, compared to those that are in the palaces of the Philistines. I will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod and him that holdeth the scepter from Ashkelon. And I will turn mine hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, saith the Lord God. Don't worry, there's no quiz at the end of today's class on on geography uh, of ancient Israel. But all those cities, Ashdod and Gaza and Ashkelon and Ekron, those are Philistine cities. Goliath would have known every one of them. But again, they're being punished because, well, Goliath or not, they are looking down on the little people and not taking care of them. You see a similar problem in verse 9 and 10 where his next uh, order of business is against the people of Tyre. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyrus, or for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom. And so same problem that we saw in the previous section from the Philistines, but then added this, they remembered not the brotherly covenant. As a result, I will send a fire on the wall of Tyrus, which shall devour the palaces thereof. Again, palaces are the problem. 
But you see the sin? You're not remembering the brotherly covenant. Wait, brothers? Are we related to the people of Tyre? Well, Solomon and Hiram sure got along well, even though there didn't seem to be any oh, familial background there. That's okay. We are all connected as members of the human race. And part of our brotherly covenant is to be our brother's keeper. That is not what was happening in Tyre. We saw this earlier too, where Tyre was uh, a merchant city, a lot like Babylon would be. And again, if you think about economic prosperity leading to social disparity, that's what's happening in Tyre as well. And they don't care about the people that they're wealthy enough to help provide for. They could, everyone could be an Amos, one supported, but the poor, the poor aren't being helped at all. We see similar problems in Edom. And now we are getting even closer to the brotherly covenant because the Edomites are descendants of Esau, just like the people of Judah and Israel are descendants of Jacob. So here's real brothers, okay, Esau and Jacob. But he says in verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he did pursue his brother with the sword, and had cast off all pity, and his anger did tear perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman, which shall devour the palaces of Bozrah. The redundancy here in this first chapter of Amos ought to be riveting our attention. That's what Elder President Irene once said. Repetition is meant to rivet the attention. And by hearing this over and over, three transgressions, four transgressions, it's happening in Syria, it's happening among the Philistines, up in Tyre, we're getting closer and closer. It, that we're zeroing in on the ultimate target. Now we're getting closer as far as background is concerned. The Edomites are... They're not part of the house of Israel, but they're part of the house of Abraham and Isaac. These are brothers. And we went from forgetting the brotherly covenant to now not just neglecting our brethren, but attacking them, pursuing them with the sword. How could you do that when you know you're related to them? Shouldn't there be some family pity? Well, yeah, that's why they had to cast off that pity. They almost had to push their way through to avoid brotherly love, to actually feel human compassion. To do things that devastating, you do have to dehumanize the other. And that's been the case of anti-Semitism. It's been the case of so much racism. If I can dehumanize the other to the point that I can even convince myself, well, they don't feel pain like normal people do. I mean, they're barely even people. Uh, this is like this is like animals, and so they don't they don't tearing families apart is no different than just oh separating the puppy from from the mother. Uh, there's no it's you understand what I'm getting at or what I what Amos is getting at the the anger the wrath and getting up in arms over some perceived slight or danger that's what helps overcome human sympathy and pity. That, that's what went into the Holocaust. That's what's gone into so much war and persecution. It's, it's a, a severing of brotherly covenants, a dehumanizing of the other, so I don't have to feel any tugs of emotion, no pulls on the heartstrings, no, 
No pain to the conscience. Eh, they deserve what they're getting. We have to avoid those kinds of pitfalls. One last one in this chapter, and there's still more in the chapter to come, but verse 13 through 15 is for the Ammonites. Again, connected to Abraham. That Ammon, the Ammonites come from the daughters of Lot, and Lot was connected to Abraham. So here's their message. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead that they might enlarge their border. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour the palaces thereof with shouting in the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. That would have been a good time for a thunder crash uh, weather. And, the, and their king shall go into captivity. He and his princes together, saith the Lord. We see palaces in these other pronouncements. Here we see a king going into captivity. A uh, preview of coming attractions? You better believe it. The Assyrians are on their way. And what are the people of Ammon doing? They're trying to enlarge their border. I mean, Israel and Judah are doing it during their times of prosperity. Why can't we? We're trying to get ahead. We're trying to move forward, but at the expense of other people. And we're not simply pursuing our brother. We are now... I mean, it's hard to even repeat the language. To have gone so far past pity and to have dehumanized and demonized the other to the point that the truly defenseless, we're talking women and children. In fact, we're talking women with child. If there were ever someone that you would think would, would work upon your pity and that you would at least spare them. What are they going to do to fight you? <laughs> Nothing. You're going to take their, their land. You're going to enlarge their border. Did you really have to rip up the women with child to do so? And yet human history is full of that kind of depravity. Usually in efforts to get ahead somehow. It's tragic. Now that's the end of chapter 1, but chapter 2 is no better. We're just zeroing in. We're getting closer and closer. So having gone from Syria to the Philistines, to Tyre, to Edom, to Ammon, it's still yeah, distantly related, but we're getting closer and closer. But look how chapter 2 begins. Full of all the elements you've come to expect. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four. So the Moabites, there's another uh, kingdom that's descended from Lot and his daughters. Uh, this is a connection to Abraham, therefore, as well. But because of their transgressions, three, four, what's next, what's next, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime, but I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kiriath, and Moab shall die with tumult and shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the judge from the midst thereof, and will slay all the princes thereof with him, saith the Lord. Same social class we're dealing with. We talk of palaces and princes and kings here. But a king has even become the, the target. I mean, we've, we've reduced everyone else, right? The, the men have been slain. The women and children have been slain. What else is there? Well, the king, now there's a connection. Edom and Moab are neighbors. Yeah, some distant connection through Abraham as well. But to burn the bones of the king of Edom into lime, 
This is robbing them of a of a burial that's dignified. Rather than giving them that honor and paying them that respect, oh, just burn their bones, turn it into lime, because then at least it's useful for something. Uh, we could again, pr we can prosper based on our persecution of others, and we can get ahead by putting other people down. Now, having gone through all of those surrounding kingdoms, he only has two left, and these final two are the ones that really hit home. Verse 4 and 5, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah, and for four. He's finally addressing the Lord's own people. In fact, his own people. He is from Judah. And he says to his fellow citizens, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. And their lies caused them to err, after the which their fathers have walked. But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. It's still the palaces. It's still fire. It's still three transgressions. Oh, make that four. They are despising the law of the Lord. And that law, at its most basic, was to honor the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy might, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. And the second great commandment is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You're not. Especially not you who are holed up in your pleasant palaces, thinking that the fire can never come to you. Oh, it will. But that's still, oh, prelude. Even speaking of Judah, because Judah, the fire is actually further away from them than it is to Israel. The southern kingdom will survive the Assyrian onslaught. The northern kingdom will not. And so having gone through all of these seven other kingdoms, he now zeroes in on his original and ultimate target. The one he's been trying to get at all along, hoping that his audience in Israel has been condemning neighbor after neighbor after neighbor, and then the trap is sprung. Verse 6 through 8, here's what Amos has been getting at this entire time. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. He doesn't even get specific about the fire here. By now, it should be obvious. Every other kingdom has been playing with matches. Every other kingdom will be burned. Well, the fire has been stoked by your iniquity as well. And get ready for a conflagration. They'll know by now what he's getting at. And what are they guilty of to bring on the flames? Because they sold the righteous for silver. And the poor for a pair of shoes. Yeah, a pair of shoes you probably use to walk all over them. They pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. And a man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Now this is serious. That's the longest explanation of what's going wrong. But again, this is the target audience he's had in mind from the beginning. And unlike most of the other kingdoms that were horizontally sinning, sinning against neighbor, 
we saw the addition of a vertical sin among the people of Judah. You're not keeping the law of the Lord. You're not keeping his commandments. Uh, I'm not even going to worry so much about vertical righteousness among these other kingdoms because many of them don't know better. They have their pagan pantheons, and that's what their I mean, idolatry to them, fine, it's false gods anyway. But you, Judah, you, Israel, you should know better. And so I'm holding you accountable on, on both dimensions, the horizontal and the vertical. And you see it most clearly among the Israelites. In the horizontal dimension, sins against humanity, selling the righteous for silver? There's no justice there. If you can be paid off and bought and sold, Selling the poor for a pair of shoes, dust upon the head of the poor, turning away the way of the meek, and then couple that with sins against divinity, not just sins against humanity. And, and to see the, the immorality here, this is Sodom and Gomorrah all over again, that also was breaking both of the first and the second great commandment. Father and son going in unto the same maid. This is immorality. And profaning my holy name. When it talks about the house of their God, the pledge by the altar, this is hypocrisy in high places. This is desecration of the sacred. And that's exactly what's happening up north. What's going to result? Well, we should know by now. We know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. We know, again, when we were talking about dehumanizing, it's interesting that dehumanization sometimes adds or comes as a part of commodification. If I can commodify somebody when they become an, an object rather than a subject, and I can use them as any way that I want, uh, this is so much of capitalism run amok leads to similar problems. Verse 9 and 10, his warnings continue. Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them. In other words, I cleared out the promised land to make way for you. I destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars. He was strong as the oaks. Here's God cutting down the prideful. That was the end of their round on the pride cycle. They got driven out of the promised land or destroyed within it. And then you entered. But you're following the same downward path. Don't you know where it leads? He says, I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath, which is exactly what's going to happen to you. Malachi will talk about that with trees without root or branches. He goes on, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years to the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. Don't you remember the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings and coming into the promised land? Do you really think I did all of that for nothing? And yet these days of your prosperity have been days of your depravity. And that's got to change. Or you will follow the, you'll follow suit. You live like the Amorites, you'll die like the Amorites. You'll be driven off the promised land just like they were. Verse 11 and 12, notice what they're doing here. And this would be particularly heartbreaking for God. I raised up your sons for prophets. That was my ultimate plan for them. Of your young men for Nazarites. Remember the Nazarite vow? People set apart for higher and holier purposes. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord? But ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Prophesy not. In other words, you robbed 
these people of glorious potential. And who were these people? Your sons, your young men. What we saw last week in the book of Joel, add to that your daughters, your young women. Every bit as worthy and every bit with the kind of potential to become prophetesses, to have the Spirit of God poured out upon them. Couple, it's do this. Couple what we saw at the end of Joel, chapter 2, with what we're seeing here near the end of Amos 2. And we are living in a world that is robbing the rising generation of their glorious potential. Because the world is telling them not to live up to it. When God, remember, this is on the, on the, right on the heels of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. What did God said at Sinai? I'm, I, this is my intent for you. This is the potential that I see before me. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a peculiar people, a peculiar treasure, people I can claim as my own. But remember when we studied the book of Daniel, when Babylon comes to try to Babylonify people of great potential, to rob them of who they really are by convincing them, no, eat our food, listen to our music, bow to our gods, live our ways. And that's what's happening here. Nazarites made the, the vow, the covenant, to be different, distinct, separated was the word that came up, what, like six times back in Numbers chapter 6, if I'm remembering right. The Nazarite vow is what, remember our, one of our most famous Nazarites was Samson? Talk about potential. And yet, where does he go grapple with the lion in a vineyard? when the fruit of the vine is off limits to Nazarites, it's, it's bad when you get a Samson who robs himself of that potential and goes to places he shouldn't go and engages in things he shouldn't be engaged in and ends up paying the ultimate price. He becomes weak like any other man. Well, that's what Babylon's trying to do. That's what Assyria is trying to do. Sadly, that's what Israel is doing to itself and worst of all, to its young. Because they're giving the Nazarites wine to drink. Here, break your covenant. That's the kind of thing that Amos is decrying in Israel. You're taking would-be prophets and denying them the gift of prophecy. You're taking the separate and making them like everybody else. I hope that we're getting a sense of what we're up against in a wicked world that is trying to homogenize us to Babylonian standards, trying to bring us down what makes us different, what makes us separate, stealing away our spiritual gifts and making us no different from anyone else so that we can make no difference for anyone else. No wonder he says in verse 13, Behold, I am pressed under you, as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. Have you ever loaded up a car or a truck, a minivan, whatever it might be, with so much stuff you're going to take to the dump, or so many belongings that you're going to go fill your home with? That's probably more likely what the rich of Israel are doing. But you can, I mean, you can see it on the wheel wells, that the, the weight of these things are just crushing the car or the truck itself. What is its carrying capacity? Well, here, I am pressed under you. 
I can't help but think of Gethsemane when Christ is crushed under the weight of humanity's sin and to be pressed under like a cart full of sheaves. How's the animal even going to move it? These beasts of burden. Remember, Amos is a herdsman. He cares about those animals, those beasts of burdens, a beast of burden. He cares about the, the harvest. He wants those sheaves. But speaking of the law of the harvest, what are you sowing? What will you reap? Because if it is a crushing load of iniquity, then you're crushing your chances at redemption because it's Jesus that is being flattened beneath that sin. Pressed under like a cart pressed with sheaves. Verse 14 and 15, he then says, Therefore the flight shall perish with the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his force. Neither shall the mighty deliver himself. Neither shall he stand that handleth the bow, and he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself. Neither shall he that rideth the horse deliver himself. You get a sense there that there's no escaping the consequences of their sin? I don't care how swift you are. We went from swift of foot to swift of horse. Whether you're infantry or cavalry, there's no getting away from this. And the mighty, the strong, that's not going to help you either. There's no way out but repentance. In verse 16, he then ends this chapter. He that is courageous among the mighty, eh, not even them, they shall flee away naked in that day, saith the Lord. Naked, uncovered. Remember covering, that's the, the word for atonement in ancient Israel. And so to be courageous, but not courageous enough, to be mighty but not to, not to receive that might through the God of Israel, then yes, you are naked, uncovered, exposed to the demands of justice, and you will be running for your life in hopes of escaping. Now, strong two chapters we've just studied. The messages, the warnings of woe, these burdens that Amos is feeling, the zeroing in on his target audience up in Israel, the sins against humanity and the sins against divinity, breaking both of the two great commandments. The consequences are coming. And we'll see that in chapter 3. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 5 are all judgment speeches. They all begin with the same phrase. And it's to get the attention of the audience in Israel to hear the word of the Lord. That's how he begins. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. So it's not just in the northern kingdom here. Whole house of Israel. So you and Judah, my neighbors, this is for you as well. Saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. This is where much is given, much is required. I chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am their God, if they will be my people, if you will be. And so you have to live up to this. You cannot be like everyone else. In verse 3, he starts asking rhetorical questions. The first, can two walk together except they be agreed? Can you picture a three-legged race there, where the two just can't seem to get on the same page? And so they're tripping each other and, and just falling down instead of running forward. 
We just saw at the, ex at the end of chapter 2, you better be able to run. But if you are tied to someone else, you have to be agreed. I sometimes joke with marriage, marriages that are, that are frayed and fraught. Imagine if that couple shared a car that had the steering wheel on one side and the brake and gas on the other. To get anywhere, they would have to be on the same page. They'd have to agree, or they couldn't drive together. In this case, they couldn't walk together. And who is the Lord talking about here? Israel and Judah, one family, one house, the one he chose from the beginning and covenanted with, and himself. I'm trying to walk with you, if you'll walk with me. But that will not happen unless we are agreed. If you won't keep your part of the covenant, then I can't keep mine. I can't protect you. I can't preserve you. And so what am I doing instead? I'm sending prophets to cry repentance so we can be agreed again. Now that was the first rhetorical question. Here's the next six. And they come in pairs because this is poetry, repeating ideas. First two, will a lion roar in the forest when he hath no prey? And then a similar one. Will a young lion cry out of his den if he have taken nothing? Here's the next pair. Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? And a gin is bait or a lure. And then a similar question. Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? And then the last pair. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? The JST corrects that. Hath not known it? Now, these are all odd questions. But if you think them through and, know, and look for their common, the common thread, the common denominator in them all, these are all questions about cause and effect. And basically saying, there's not going to be an effect if there's no cause. Go back through them and, and see how that unfolds. Is a lion going to roar if he, if he had, doesn't have any prey? And again, is a young lion going to cry out of his den if they haven't taken anything? In other words, do, do lions roar for no reason? I, I, I don't, on Lion King, I guess they just kind of growl out there at times. But what Amos is getting at is, no, if there's no prey, then the lion isn't going to roar. He's going to have a reason to open his mouth. Next pair. Is a bird going to just fall uh, out, of the, out of the air for no reason? Or is he going to be trapped in a, in a snare if no one baited the hook, so to speak? Same idea with the third pair. If a trumpet is blasts in the city, remember Paul talks about this to the Corinthians, if a trumpet gives an uncertain sound, then who's going to rouse, rouse themselves for the battle? Uh, we saw the, the watchman on the tower in Ezekiel, and if they blow the trumpet, then they did their job, and the ball is now in the people's court. But the point here is, if the trumpet blasts, are, aren't the people going to be afraid? And the answer, again, the rhetorical question is, well, of course they're going to be afraid because trumpeters don't trumpet for no reason. That would be a false alarm. That would be the watchman crying wolf. And they know better than that. Because you do that enough, you have enough... Oh, effect without any cause behind it, then pretty soon when there is a real cause, nobody's going to have the proper effect. Is this making sense? Again, if you slowly go through these rhetorical questions, then the idea here is there's a reason for things to happen. And especially when you connect the first pair with the third pair.
about lions roaring and alarms sounding, watchmen blowing trumpets to prepare people for the battle because they see an enemy on the horizon and they're beginning to loom large. Do you get a sense where we're going with this? Do you understand now the trap that Amos is about to set? It's been baited. (laughs) The bird's going to come. This is where he says that all important and all famous verse, Amos 3 verse 7, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. JST, he won't do it until he revealeth his secrets. I'm not going to act unless I've warned the people first, through my prophets. But then the trap snaps shut. Verse 8, the lion hath roared. Who will not fear? Repeat it. The Lord God hath spoken. Who can but prophesy? You understand what Amos just did? This is a rhetorical masterpiece on on the level of Isaiah himself. Not bad for a herdsman. What he just pulled off there, because what's his first rhetorical question? Well, I guess his second after can two walk together, because I'm trying to get Israel and the God of Israel to become friends again. Okay? The first one was about a lion roaring. In fact, what did he say at the very beginning of chapter 1? That the Lord will roar from Zion, raise his voice from Jerusalem. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And lions don't roar for no reason. Surely the Lord God will do nothing unless he tells his servants, the prophets, first. The lion hath roared. Wake up. (laughs) Come to arms. Come to battle. It's go time. The Lord has spoken from Jerusalem. Even I, a lowly herdsman from Tekoa, I'm a roaring lion too. Whenever I see prophets and apostles speak in general conference, Amos 3 comes to mind. Not just verse 7, but verse 3 through 8, which puts verse 7 in proper perspective. The lion is roaring, and prophets never cry wolf. When there is a watchman on the tower, blowing his trumpet. Remember we saw that? Trumpets from, from Zion in Joel last week. To understand what they're trying to say... Because of what they have seen, that's the the reason we have prophets in the earth. That's what God is doing. That is the trumpet blast. That is the, the alarm sounding. That is the lion roaring. In verse 9 through 10, what are they roaring here? Publish in the palaces of Ashdod. There's Philistia. Okay. And in the palaces in the land of Egypt, these are two of your oldest and most long-standing enemies. Say, assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria. Behold the great tumults in the midst thereof, and the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. In other words, there is wickedness in Israel. That's the mountains of Samaria that would shock even the Philistines and the Egyptians. People that historically oppressed you, well, now they're going to see the roles reversed. 
as you become the oppressors yourself, O people of Israel. You're no better than the Egyptians. What they talk about enforced empathy? You already felt what it was like to oppress. But now you're oppressing the poor among you? Prepare yourself, the day will come where you're oppressed all over again. As if Egypt is coming back to haunt you, as if the Philistines are coming back to haunt you. This time it will be the Assyrians. When will we learn? In verse 11, he says, Therefore, so here's the consequence. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be, even round about the land. And he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. There's that talk of palaces again. You oppress the poor, so you'll feel once again what it is like to be oppressed. Enforced empathy, just like I said. Then verse 12. This is an interesting one, if you know your Old Testament well enough. Thus saith the Lord, As the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs, or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. Now we'll see in a moment what those beds are made of. And yes, they're making their beds and they will lie in them. And what will that lion look like? It'll be scattering. When it speaks of the children of Israel being taken out that dwell in Samaria, that's the lost ten tribes. That's the scattering of the northern kingdom. And that's what Assyria is about to do. But notice the way it's described in wonderful herdsman kind of language that Amos knew by personal experience, it will be like a shepherd that a lion comes and attacks the flock. And one poor little lamb, all that's left of them is two legs and the piece, a piece of an ear. Do you remember when David, as a good shepherd, took his trusty sling and stone and fought off a lion and a bear to be able to preserve one little lamb? from the mouth of the lion and the paw of the bear. That's courage. That's not thinking it's too late. Well, here it's definitely too late. All that's left of this poor thing are body parts. But here's where a knowledge of the Old Testament would come in handy. Because on the one hand, you can take this as simple prophecy regarding the remnant that will remain. And that, and that works for that, okay? Uh, the house of Israel is going to be scattered from Samaria. And all that will be left are a few pieces left. This is Isaiah with Sheir Yashub, a remnant shall return. Okay? But more than that, according to the book of Exodus, chapter 22, there is an interesting passage about if you are caring for somebody else's flock. Uh, if you're a hired herdsman, for example, which is probably what Amos was. He would know this verse. And it says this in Exodus 22, verse 12 and 13. If it be stolen from him, if the animal that you're responsible for, you've been taking care of it, you've been herding it, but it's, it's taken from by an enemy, it's stolen. What's your responsibility as the, as the herdsman, as the servant? He shall make restitution unto the owner thereof. Hmm, it's, it was on your watch. You should have been more careful. But then this detail. If it be torn in pieces... And that's exactly what he just described as the, what happening in the northern kingdom. If that's the case, then let him bring it for a witness. Bring those two legs. Bring that piece of an ear. And he shall not make good that which was torn. Hmm. Interesting difference. 
I think the idea here is, do you have proof that you did your very best to preserve the life of this animal? You were responsible for it. How, how seriously did you take that responsibility? Because if you just come back and you say it got stolen, how do we know that it wasn't you or some family member, some partner in crime that stole it? Okay, then it's, you're going to be responsible for it. No, you should have fought tooth and nail to be able to preserve that thing. You should have scared off the enemy, whether it was a human thief or some, some beast of prey. If you lost the fight, at least you fought. Bring back whatever was remaining. And that's evidence to the master. I did the best that I could. I'm sorry. Okay, it's not your fault. That's obvious. And you don't have to pay me back at all. Now, for this to come up in this context as a herdsman like Amos is crying repentance to the people of Israel and speaking on behalf of God, roaring on behalf of the lion of the tribe of Judah, letting them know that the north will be destroyed, the tribes will be scattered, all that will be left is a righteous remnant. But God and his servants are off the hook. They have done all they could. They roared. They sounded the alarm. They cried repentance. They begged us to change. They warned us of the consequences of our sin. They let us know we were playing with matches. They saw the burning, the smoke beginning to rise, and the fire beginning to be kindled. They let everybody know what would come of this, and you didn't change? If I hadn't done my job, then the responsibility, the, your blood would have been on my garments. But I've got two legs and, a, and an earlobe to show. That when Israel is scattered and only that little remnant remains, that's not on God and that's not on his servants. They did what they were called to do. He then says in verse 13 and 14, Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day that I will visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. God is going to come and see your places of idolatry and infidelity. And there will be no sanctuary to call when you're there. Remember, Bethel was the place in the northern kingdom where Jeroboam set up a golden calf to make it easy and more convenient to worship our false gods instead of go all the way down to Jerusalem to worship the true God in his true home. No. But that's idolatry, and you'll be punished for that. Oh, well, no, I've even thought of that. Because sanctuary is the place where you can cry sanctuary, and you're safe on home base. The horns of the altar are that place where I can just hold on and be free from consequence. Oh, really? You really think you can run and hide? No, the law of the harvest will seek you out. The, the fire will find its way to the stubble when harvest time has come. I will cut off the horns from the altar and there will be no home base where you're safe from sin. Safe from the consequences of sin, I should say. So he ends this chapter, verse 15, I will smite the winter house with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. 
you talk about running and not being able to hide. Where did they run to? From summer winter house to summer house, the ivory house, the great house. Well, that's a lot of houses. Oh, of course. I mean, I just want some oh, offshore property, uh, some investment property. If, I, if I'm in trouble in this place, I'll just run to the other. And there's always going to be some hideout because I can afford to give myself some other place to flee. But again, that's the irony. All these... All this worldly wealth you've stockpiled, it's not going to be the solution. You can't run to any of those other houses because they're the problem. By stockpiling all of this at the expense of the poor, that's what's what's kindled the fire. We've, We've got to put it out. We need to care more about other people than just amassing things for ourselves. That judgment that he's been warning you about all along is being passed in chapter 4. This is the second of the three judgment speeches. And it begins just like the first one did with the phrase, hear this word. Listen up, Israel. And what are you going to listen to? A lion roaring, an alarm sounding. And this one, the way he begins this one, it is strong language, earthy language, the kind a herdsman would use. He says, hear this word, ye kind of Bashan that are in the mountains of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. The dehumanizing is still going forward as they look down upon their workforce, thinking, you're only, <laughs> you're only good for what you can bring to me. Uh, I don't care to pay you on an honest wage. I just, I'm your master. And I'm going to say to my servants, bring, let us drink. Come on. But the way he puts it there, oppressing the poor, crushing the needy. But my favorite line, the most brutal of them all, is what he calls them at the beginning. You who are in the mountains of Samaria, the people of Israel, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. He calls them kind of Bashan. And Bashan was a neighboring kingdom to the northeast of Israel, known for its oaks. Remember when Isaiah talked about the cedars of Lebanon and the oaks of Bashan both being leveled? That's pride being chopped down. Timber, there it goes. Okay? Well, not only was it famous, Bashan famous for its oak trees, but because it was a fertile territory, it was a great place also to raise cattle because there was plenty for them to eat. And kine are cattle. And so when he calls the people of Israel, kind of Bashan, forgive me for trying to be as earthy and raw as Amos himself was, but what Amos is basically doing here is, listen up, you fat cows. All you do is sit around chewing the cud, but you are trampling upon the poor that are beneath you. Can you imagine being called a fat cow? (laughs) Feasting on someone else's labor? Oppressing the poor, crushing the needy? This is strong language coming from a strong herdsman that knows what a, well, would know what a fat cow looked like if his cows had anything good to graze upon. They didn't. So he goes on and says in verse 2 and 3, The Lord God hath sworn by his holiness. And if he's swearing on his own character, his own holiness. You better count on this happening. 
that lo, the day shall come upon you that he will take you away with hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. That's probably a nod to the Assyrian army on its way since they were famous for their cruelty to prisoners of war. They would lead them back to Nineveh, dry, dragging them back with a hook through the nose. Okay, So that's, that's what God is swearing. He goes on, Ye shall go out at the breaches. Every cow, how's that for ye kind of Bashan? Every cow at that which is before her. And ye shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord. He keeps bringing up these palaces. Summer house, winter house, your palace. There's no place to hide you're going to be, you fat cows are going to be like a cow that's just looking for some way to escape the corral. And if you can find some little breach and go out thereby, oh, there's going to be plenty of breaches when the Assyrian army comes and lays siege to the place, the, the palaces of Samaria. They're trying to fight their way in, but really, in a way, you're trying to fight your way out in hopes of finding something. You're going to be eating each other's children. This is, these are the, the siege and the famine and everything that we've seen in the historical sections leading up to this. This is devastation. Uh, maybe, maybe you're not fat cows after all. Maybe this is seven fat cows for Pharaoh to think about, but followed by seven, Seven cows so skinny that they'll gobble up the fat ones and still show no sign of sustenance. That's what's going to happen to you, O Samaria, unless you change. He says in verse 4 and 5, and most likely he says this with sarcasm dripping off his lips. Again, this is an earthy, this is like an Elijah kind of character. Okay, So he calls them fat cows. Here with sarcasm he's going to say, come to Bethel. I mean, that's the site of Jacob's ladder, holy place, right? But come to Bethel and transgress. Yeah, do it right there. In God's face, so to speak. Uh, how about Gilgal? That's the memorial where they crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. Another holy place of showing God's mercy and power in bringing them into the promised land. No, go to Gilgal. Yeah, go there. Go to Gilgal and multiply transgression. And bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. Oh yeah, live the gospel. Do all that you're commanded. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God. This is strong language. Go ahead and boast and brag about your ritual observance. Your keeping the commandments at least as far as the, the ritual law is concerned. You're doing nothing with the moral law. You're doing nothing with the social law. But oh yeah, as long as we have Bethel here and Gilgal and places to make our token offerings and our burnt sacrifices, we'll give our tithes. I mean, it's easy to give a tithe when we're getting so much ourselves. Ah, what, what they're doing here? Sounds a lot like Jesus when he chides the scribes and Pharisees of his day for praying on the street corners to be seen of men, for disfiguring their faces so it looks like they're fasting to other people. This is, we'll see more and more conspicuous consumption. This we might call conspicu conspicuous consecration, but without the sacred side of consecration. But I'm giving to God. I'm giving all these things. 
We're going to see how God feels about that shortly, and it's with some more strong language. But first, go to verse 6 and 7. I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. And then he repeats it with a new image. And want of bread in all your places. Ah, that explains cleanness of teeth. It's not that you're brushing them so well. It's that you don't have any food to eat to get them dirty. Uh, there's There's no need to floss because nothing got caught in there. Okay? So there's cleanness of teeth. There's want of bread. Yet, he says, have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Also, I have withholden the rain from you. So there's drought that leads to famine, what leads to want. When there were yet three months to the harvest. Now talk about a horrible time to withhold the rain. That's when the real growth occurs. I mean, it's been planted, it's grown somewhat, but we still have three more months to really get it to the point where the harvest will be, will be worth harvesting. But nope. Rain, withholden, all that will be left of this harvest is small and shriveled fruit. Still, I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. Now, take your choice which city you'd rather live in, right? Uh, Yes, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Was this deserving rain or undeserved rain? Hard to tell, but since there was at least a little food out there, it rained in patches, so there was harvest in places. Unfortunately, notice what happens next, verse 8. So two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. So that kind of explains what he was getting at with why it rains in some places and not in others. I mean, it's not going to be enough for everybody. One little patch of ground that gives a a plentiful harvest. Well, because of all the famine and drought everywhere else, it's like the joke of, hey, I don't have to have a a food storage because I got neighbors who do. Well, careful. That food storage isn't going to go very far if everybody's coming to pillage it. And so even you in your wealthy palaces, there's not going to be enough to show when everyone else needs something and they come running to you. How are you going to survive all of this? I mean, my suggestion would be returning to the Lord, trusting in Him. That's the place where the rain really falls. That's a city that every other city can come into and feast together. Are you willing to do that, though? doesn't seem like it. In verse 9, I have smitten you with blasting and mildew. And that's going to be horrible for a harvest, too. If that's what happens in your granary, there's not going to be much grain once it's time to eat. He goes on, when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, the palmer worm devoured them. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Remember when Joel was talking about this locust infestation, devouring everything in its way? Think again about the plagues of Egypt and what locusts did to clear things out so that the Egyptians would have nothing to survive upon. Even when there was a little bit of of food remaining in Goshen among the righteous. I mean, for a farmer like Amos, these are words of warning. No matter how many gardens or vineyards or olive trees or fig trees, the law of the harvest here suggests no harvest at all. In verse 10, I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I told you this was a repeat of the plagues. Your young men have I slain with a sword and have taken away your horses, and I have made the stink of your camps to come up unto your nostrils. 
Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. You see how he keeps repeating this? This happens, but you still haven't returned. And then this happened, and you still haven't returned. This happened, you still haven't returned. What more can I do for my vineyard to convince you for, of your need to change? It's interesting, I've heard it said by way of discipline, that don't start with your bazooka, begin with a BB gun. And just some little consequence in hopes that that's all it'll take to change. When that is insufficient, then yes, you move to higher caliber, uh, to bigger firepower. And those fires that were kindled back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, yes, we're, we're talking major, major consequences. Will you change? Will you repent? Will you return unto me? He says in verse 11, I have overthrown some of you. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm not sure how I feel about all these similes. I'm comparing you to Egypt. I'm comparing you to Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what happened to them. Yeah, exactly. Ye were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. So you barely escaped. Yet have ye not returned unto me? There's that same line again, saith the Lord. Nothing is working to soften your heart. Even when you start feeling the heat of some of your consequences, right? There was a firebrand. I plucked you out of the burning. <laughs> Blow it out. It's like you're making s'mores and, and your marshmallow just caught fire. Uh, Israel, are you not aware? Do none of these close calls that you've had with surrounding enemies, if they haven't softened your heart, awakened you to your problems, and convinced you to change, if they haven't turned you back to me, I got nothing left except Assyria. And that's one it's going to take millennia to recover from. The only solution to that scattering will be the, the, the ultimate gathering of Israel in the last days. Finally, he says in verse 12 and 13, Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. For lo, he that formeth the mountains, and createth the wind, and declareth unto man what is his thought, that maketh the morning darkness, and treadeth upon the high places of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. How's that to get your attention? This is the first of three doxologies. And a doxology is kind of a ritual praise of God. Uh, praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost is often used in Christian worship as the doxology. And we're going to see three doxologies from Amos. This is his first one. But trying, again, everything he can. So many different rhetorical approaches here, and name-calling, and sarcasm, and, and zeroing in on the real target, and lulling them into a sense that everybody else is guilty when you're really the guilty one I'm after. Well, in this one, to end this chapter, this second judgment speech, with that kind of praise of God, do you know who I'm trying to introduce you to this whole time? Over and over in these last few verses, you still haven't returned unto the Lord. Well, maybe it's because you don't know who it is you're supposed to return to. How's this for an introduction? Because you're about to meet thy God. You can either do that in a glorious way of kneeling before him and offering your sins and coming to know the Lord as your Savior and Redeemer. Or would you rather come to know him as your executioner, as your judge? Because 
Meeting your maker is what's going to happen when the Assyrians come. The way he describes him, he forms the mountains, including the mountain of the Lord there in Jerusalem, his holy home. He creates the wind, including the kind that is going to winnow away the chaff if you don't come back and become good grain. He declares unto people what they're thinking. And that's what I've been trying to get you to do. What are you thinking? God knows, do you? You've got to change those thoughts. When he makes the morning darkness, you think it's just another day at the office? Oh, and even though we've done horrible things, the sun always comes up in the morning. Well, the morning will be, will be dark when the Assyrians come. He treads upon the high places. Well, he's going to trample you down underfoot since you've been trampling him. Who is it? It's the Lord. It's the God of hosts, the God of armies, including the Assyrian one that's coming. That's his name. How would you like to meet him? On a good day or a bad, choice is yours. The choice continues in chapter 5, which is the third of these three judgment speeches. It starts with the same basic beginning as the others, calling Israel to attention. Hear ye this word, which I take up against you. But this word, more than just judgment and warning, it's almost as if it's too late because take up against you a lamentation, O house of Israel. I am going to weep and mourn because you wouldn't take advantage of your opportunity to repent. This is like Jeremiah giving us 52 chapters of warning and then giving us a handful of chapters of lamentation. And that's what we get from Amos. His lamentation, the virgin of Israel is fallen and shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land. There is none to raise her up. Do you remember those old commercials we saw when we were little about the lady that falls down, the old woman that falls and that says, just in a, a sound of desperation, says, I've fallen and I can't get up. I don't even remember what they were advertising. I think it was some kind of service that if you push a button, then somebody can come and help you and they can lift you up because I've fallen and I can't get up on my own. That's what Amos is mourning about here. The virgin of Israel is fallen and won't rise. There's nobody there to raise her up. No one's there to help. You've driven away all your would-be helpers. The Lord and his servants. You've rejected them all. These youth that could prophesy. You told them not to. The Nazarites that separated themselves out so they could be a higher, holier people. No. You forced them to drink wine. You brought everyone down to your low level. And with everyone on the floor, of course there's no one there above you to lift you up. You see what we've done to ourselves? We've destroyed the one thing that could have come back to help and bless us. And so he says in verse 3, Thus saith the Lord God, The city that went out by a thousand shall leave a hundred. That which went forth by a hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. How's that for a remnant shall remain? Or, since the math follows so perfectly, how's that for a tithe of the land? You marched out against the Assyrian host with a thousand men. Only a hundred survived. Or in the smaller villages, you tried to protect and defend yourself with a hundred troops. Ninety percent of them met their maker. Speaking of tithes, 
since you were so proud of the tithes you were giving in those high places where you were the highest one of all. Yeah, how's that for poetic justice? When instead of giving the tithe so proudly, you become the tithe. Actually, you become the 90% that is wiped away and only a tithe remains. He goes on in verse 4 and 5, For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to naught. Bethel and Gilgal were the places he mentioned before, right? Jacob's Ladder and the memorial of the crossing of the Jordan River. Those were places that we felt like, yeah, God's with us. He's done all these incredible things in the past. Add to that Beersheba, which is the southern limit of the kingdom. And, and there you see the promised land and the renewal of the Abrahamic covenant. And of, of course God is going to be with us. We're his people, aren't we? Well, that's the question. You sure aren't acting like that. And so just to claim, of course we're going to win the war. We've got Bethel. Well, what happens when Bethel falls? <laughs> of course God will preserve us. Think about the miracles he performed to get us into this place. We've got a stack of stones in Gilgal as proof. And again, what's the point of Gilgal? It's a memorial to past promises that people back then actually kept. You're not doing that. And so don't... In some ways, I think what he's getting at is your membership is nothing compared to your discipleship. And just claiming, this is what Jesus and John, and John the Baptist, for that matter, were, were chiding people in their day for, that you, you claim to be house of Israel and that's all it takes. God can raise up from these stones children of Israel. That's no big deal. Uh, just claiming that you have the right membership is nothing. Or another way to put it, you have the right address, fine. How about the right attitudes? We talked about this so many times last year when we studied the, the Doctrine and Covenants, that Zion was not a location as much as it was a lifestyle. And until it becomes your lifestyle, it'll never become your location. Until it becomes your attributes, it'll never be your address. Zion is a people more than it's a place. And it's only Zion people that will ever be able to build a Zion place anyway. And so quit banking on Bethel and Gilgal and Beersheba. Because seeking the Lord, and that's what he invites them to do, seek ye me and ye shall live. And you picture them going, oh, well, where? Where do we go? Where do we go to find you? <laughs> Look upward. Change the inside. And don't worry quite so much about going somewhere. Instead, work to become something. Someone like me. That's what the Lord is asking for. So he says again in verse 6, another invitation, seek the Lord, and another promise, and ye shall live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, and devour it, and there be none to quench it, even in Bethel. Now think about what we saw earlier on. For three transgressions, oh, make that four. They're playing with matches. A fire is being kindled, and it's going to burn all of these other seven kingdoms. The eighth one, he never mentions fire. Oh, I guess he does now. It's, it's been kindled in the house of Joseph. 
That's the whole house. That's Ephraim and Manasseh. That's birthright. People that should know better. Unfortunately, they've all been driven out. They've all been rejected or destroyed. And now, not only is the fire burning, but there's no one there to quench it. You, f you fired all the firemen. So who's going to put out the flame? Verse 7 through 9. Ye who turn judgment to wormwood, for the oppressed judgment is meant to be sweet, but wormwood is bitter. So again, think of the poor that needed judgment, got wormwood instead. Those who leave off righteousness in the earth, seek him. He said it in verse 4, seek ye me. He said it in 6, seek the Lord. He says it in 7, seek him. And then he begins his second doxology, this hymn of praise. Who is it we must seek? Seek him that maketh the seven stars and Orion and turneth the shadow of death into the morning and maketh the day dark with night and that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name that strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong so that the spoiled shall come against the fortress. This is the God of creation. The Lord of hosts, turn to him. He can turn the shadow of death into the morning. He can change all of these things if you'll just repent. The problem is they don't want to do it. In verse 10 and 11, they hate him that rebuketh in the gate. And remember, the gate is where the judges are. So these are true judges that are decrying the state of society, but they're being rejected. These are the prophets that are being told, don't prophesy. These are the Nazarites that are being told, go drink wine. These, they're muzzling the lion because they don't want to hear him roar. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. I mean, nobody wants to be told they're doing anything wrong, right? So just, yeah, you do you, and let's live in a land of moral relativism. Everything's fine. Ah, but for as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and ye take from him burdens of wheat, so again, you're stealing from those that need it most, you're oppressing the most needy among society. So as a result, Ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. See how it feels for the poor, the agricultural working class, to, to grow and harvest the wheat, but then you take from him the burden of wheat. Let me, let me take that off your shoulders. That looks heavy. Let me crush you under the weight of affliction like a cart with sheaves. But let me take those sheaves for myself. Thank you very much. It's so interesting how they're doing this. And to tread upon the poor, to crush them underfoot, and not want anyone to tell you that you're doing anything wrong. I mean, the consequence is fascinating because in some ways it's the reversal of entering the promised land. Remember in those days when Moses warned them and Joshua reminded them that you're going to enter a land that you didn't work for, a land for which you did not labor. You'll dwell in cities you didn't build and drink from wells you didn't dig and eat from vineyards you didn't plant. So beware lest you forget the Lord. Well, they forgot him. They didn't want to be introduced to the Lord of these beautiful praises. And so instead, fine, let's start the process again. I cleared out the Amorites so the Israelites could come in. Well, I guess I'm going to clear out the Israelites so the Assyrians can come in, and the Babylonians can come in, and the Greeks, and the Romans, and who? 
pick your poison, but you're drinking it. And you'll be driven away so that someone else comes in to the land for which they did not labor. And they'll drink from the wells you dug and eat from the vineyards you planted and dwell in homes you thought you were building for yourself. Talk about not having anything to pass down to posterity. You thought you were amassing it all for yourself. He goes on in verse 12 and 13, For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. I mean, they're, they're that obvious. So many, I can't count. That's manifold. So big, I can't overlook them. That's mighty. Specifically, they afflict the just. They take a bribe. They turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. Therefore, the prudent shall keep silence in that time, for it is an evil time. Verse 12 and 13 are fascinating because they seem so true to our day. It is an evil time, and unfortunately, sometimes that drives the prudent into absolute silence. I don't want to say anything. I mean, it seems like no matter what I say, somebody on some extreme is going to attack me for it. I mean, even the ironies of... Manifold transgressions and mighty sins seem to me anyway more of a vertical sin, sinning against God. But the others they listed of afflicting the just, taking bribes, turning aside the poor, those are the horizontal sin. In our politically polarized age, there seem to be different sins that each extreme is fighting against and calling out people for. People on the right typically are focused more on the vertical sins. And those are sins against God. People on the left often focus more on the horizontal sins. Those are sins against society. Where's the social justice, the left would say. Well, where's spiritual uprightness, morality, the right would say. Immorality on one, inhumanity on the other. Is one worse than the other? Can't we just repent of them all? But unfortunately, because it's so polarized, and seems to be so entrenched where nothing seems to change anything anyway, to the point that the prudent keep silent. Was it Alexander Pope, I think, who said that all it takes, I can't remember, maybe it was him, maybe it wasn't. Uh, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. But sadly, we're at a, at a day, an evil time, where prudence almost seems to demand don't rock the boat. Don't say anything. You're just going to get crucified on social media. Uh, just let live and let live. You do you. Moral relativism. It's all fine. Uh, I'm not going to speak up because it doesn't do anything. Well, if that's prudence, it's not discipleship. It's not courage. It's not conviction. And no, we don't have to do it contentiously, but we do have to do it courageously and call out the iniquity that we see, whether it's vert vertical or horizontal, because there's plenty of those everywhere we look. It's manifold. They are mighty. We just have to be mighty enough to call it out. Amos was. He then says in verse 14 and 15, seek good and not evil. Over and over, it was seek me, seek the Lord, seek him. Well, seek good. All of these are synonymous. Seek good and not evil that ye may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. 
Let me say it again from the flip side. Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate where judgment is supposed to be passed in righteousness. If you do it, it may be. I can't guarantee. I, I hope we're not past the point of no return. But if you'll repent, it may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. This polarity of morality has been reversed. They call evil good and good evil, but can we reverse it back? Is there hope? Can we refine society's spiritual taste buds to the point that they can taste what is true and good again so that they end up hating evil and loving good instead of vice versa? But that's a change of attitude. That's a change of taste buds, of perspective and perception and a change of heart. It's what my wife works with every day as she battles in the world of addiction recovery and tries to help people see and seek good instead of evil and get to the point where their, their taste buds have changed so much that they hate evil. They find those old sins abhorrent instead of appealing. They're no longer temptations that need to be resisted. Those are temptations that have been overcome. But to change the innermost desires, that's, that's a tall order. It requires the intervention of divinity itself. In verse 16 and 17, Therefore the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord saith thus, Wailing shall be in all streets. They shall say in all the highways, Alas, alas, that's these cries of woe. They shall call the husbandmen to mourning, and such as are skillful of lamentation, you picture professional mourners here, call them to wailing. In all the vineyards shall be wailing, for I will pass through thee, saith the Lord. The book of Jeremiah was followed by what? The book of Lamentation. And here within the book of Amos, all of these warnings and these cries to repent will be followed by what, if they go unheeded? Cries of lamentation as well. Weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, cleanness of teeth. But yes, they'll be gnashing them. Why didn't we change when we had the chance? In verse 18, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness, not light. Ironic there as well. Why are you longing for the day of deliverance when it's not you that's going to be delivered? If you want the Lord to come, unfortunately, he's coming through the land, as we saw in the previous verse, to, to level it. He's opening the door to the Assyrians because we've closed the door on him. And so, I don't know why you desire the day of the Lord. When we talk about the second coming being both great and dreadful, yeah, if, if I knew it was going to be dreadful, I don't think I'd be praying to hasten the day. It's going to require preparation on my part so that, I, so that it will be a glorious day when he returns. So, quit focusing or fixating on, on the timing of the second coming. And let's talk a little bit more about how we best prepare for it. Otherwise, desiring the day of the Lord is not a good thing, because to what end would it be for us? It would be the end of us. We don't want that. So if it says in 19 and 20, and, and I love this passage, 
as if a man did flee from a lion. So there's more lion imagery. We've seen it chapter after chapter after chapter. But you're fleeing from that lion. I don't want to hear it. Okay? I don't want to hear this lion's roar. I don't think he's actually seen any prey. I'm just going to plug my ears and close their mouth. And I don't want, to, I don't want prophets in my life. So flee from the lion. But then what happens? A bear met him. Or he went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Even very dark and no brightness in it? Now, let me tell you my personal interpretation of this passage and then kind of really explain it in context. I've always loved this verse because to me, it's, I don't know of a better metaphor for deadlines. And when you're super busy and you have so many projects and they're all bearing down on you. I sometimes joke with friends when they're like, so how's everything going? I'm like, oh man, I feel like I'm fleeing from a lion. And right when I escape him, a bear jumps out to chase me. And as soon as I escape the bear and I kind of run into shelter and close the door behind me and I, <sighs> I try to catch my breath as I lean up against the wall. Then a poisonous snake jumps out and it attaches itself to my hand and I'm, I'm going to die one way or another. They're like, wow, um, you doing okay there, Jared? <laughs> but to me, that's deadlines. Uh, and as soon as I finish one project and I've made it barely away from the lion, then the next project comes due. And here comes the bear chasing after me. And as soon as I finish that by the skin of my teeth and just in the nick of time, there's another thing I've got to get done. And there's the, the, the serpent ready to attach itself. Well, uh, that, that, there's some truth to that. Okay, maybe I've bitten off more than I should chew. But what in context, what is he really saying? He was just talking about what are you hoping for in this day of the Lord? You think it's going to bring light? No, it's going to bring darkness because you're still dwelling in darkness yourself. You haven't come to the light. Uh, all you're doing is trying to escape the consequences of one's sin, but you're not dealing with the sin itself. And so thinking that you somehow made it away from, from the first round of consequences, okay, so you didn't get defeated by the Syrians? Well, the Assyrians are on their way. Oh, and I got my eye on you too, Judah, because yeah, you'll survive the Assyrian invasion, but you won't the Babylonian. You escaped the bear, excuse me, you escaped the lion only for the bear to come. Or you closed yourself off in sanctuary, home safe from the bear, but then the serpent slithers on out. If you're only trying to mask symptoms and you never deal with the underlying disease, then there's always another animal out to get you. There's always some new problem, even when you just escaped the last one. Far better to solve the, the underlying issue. Far better to just change. So he says in verse 21 to 23, and again, here's some strong language from the Lord. I hate, I despise. And he used those words before, hate the evil, love the good. But what is it that the Lord hates? What is it he can't stand? I hate, I despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Remember the stench he was talking about earlier? Well, that's how your altar of incense smells to me. It's just a stench now. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts, you fat cows. 
Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs. Interesting. You think they're songs of worship? I think they're just noise grating on the divine ear. For I will not hear the melody of thy vials. Now, remember we talked about this in the book of Isaiah. As bookends to the whole book. He does it in the first chapter, he does it in the last chapter. And what God does is he rejects their worship. In hopes of ultimately rehabilitating it. I mentioned then that I had done some research in the Old Testament and wrote a paper on, on the rejection and rehabilitation of worship in the Old Testament. And those passages in, in Isaiah were among my favorites. But this one in Amos is, is near the top of my list as well. Because here they are. Remember we saw it in the, previous, in the previous chapter that, oh no, I'm coming to Bethel. I'm coming to Gilgal. I'm offering sacrifice. I'm tithing. I'm, I'm doing all of these things. What, as your get-out-of-jail-free card? You're checking boxes in the law of Moses, but doing nothing to internalize that law and allow it to change you? Oh, but I'm active. I go to church. Okay. You're active in the church. Are you active in the gospel? Either way, you're in the building, but is, is the gospel getting into you? Remember, forget your address. Look at your attributes. Forget your location. Think of your lifestyle. And if sacrifice has become a way for you to hide your disobedience to the moral or social law behind obedience to the sacrificial or ritual law, you see why the Lord has to unmask that, strip it away, say, forget it. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your Sabbaths. I don't want your holy days because they're certainly not holy to you. You can no longer hide behind the, the list of, of or the, the array of boxes that you've checked. Because you're not changing internally. So I reject the whole thing. I, I, in fact, I hate it. Get it away from me. Back when I explained this concept in Isaiah, I, I mentioned, imagine what it would be like if your bishop went over to the sacrament table and threw the, the trays all over the first few rows. I mean, like Jesus cleansing the temple in Jerusalem. Imagine him taking your tithing envelope and ripping it up, cash and all inside, and throwing it out in your face. These so-called sacrifices disgust me. And just how shocked you would be. To think... Let me give you an experience that might help illustrate it. Because it goes back to the idea of this, this song of supposed praise sounds a lot more like noise to me. Because there's no sincerity behind it. And all of this offering of incense on the altar, oh, that stuff stinks. Because all you're doing is trying to draw attention to yourself. When I was in college years and years ago, uh, there was a special musical number in one of our wards. It was performed by, I think somebody was connected. It wasn't, no, no one in the group was even part of our ward. But I think someone in our ward had like a friend or a brother or something that was part of the, it was a, like a professional music group. And let's have them come in and do it. And it was amazing as far as sound quality, because they were professionals. But the worst part of it was, there was so much pride just kind of dripping off of every note. They were good, and they knew it. 
And as professionals, this was almost, oh, a tour going around the wards and we're going to perform and people are going to see how amazing we are. And it, it was, it was, it was a weird experience for me as a college kid, just being ears so elevated by the quality of their sound, but heart just, my wife has often said that pride is a lot like bad breath. People might be saying amazing things to you, but man, you just can't get past the stench. And so the noise of that special musical number, the stench of that pride, why are we giving things to God? Is it for His glory or our own? We have to, we have to purify our motives constantly to make sure that the worship we give God will be acceptable to Him and not have to be rejected in hopes of then being rehabilitated. Amos, thank you for that powerful, powerful message. He then says in verse 24, But let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. Sound like the river of living water flowing out from underneath the temple that Ezekiel saw? Think of the spring, the well of living water springing up to eternal life that Jesus tells the woman of Samaria about. For your judgment to run like that, for your righteousness to be a mighty stream. The word mighty there in Hebrew can actually be translated as never failing or as ever flowing. And for you who live oh, maybe in the eastern United States, for example, where rivers run constantly, they are mighty streams. Come out west and, then, and we, all we have is creeks out here. Or go to the Middle East where they have wadis, where at times there's rivers of water, but most of the time there's just rivers of sand. Because that's all there is. And nothing's been fallen enough. There's no rain. And so when Lehi says, uh, he talks about a, a river of water, that seems really redundant unless you know that in the Middle East, yeah, a lot of times of the year, they're just rivers of sand. We're looking for a mighty river. And I don't want your righteousness just to come and go. I don't want your judgment to just bubble up and then evaporate. I want mighty streams of righteousness. I need consistency there, not hit and miss discipleship. He says in 25 through 27, have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? Just reminding them of those wilderness wanderings. But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Kuhn, your images. These are pagan deities of the surrounding nations. The star of your God, which ye made to yourselves. Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Almost this sense of... Allow me to reintroduce myself, since you seem to have forgotten me. Back in the day when I delivered you from Egypt and was the Lord of those armies, brought you across the Red Sea on dry ground, carried you through the wilderness of your wanderings. I carried you. You were supposed to be carrying me in a way as well, bearing the tabernacle, bearing the Ark of the Covenant. But instead, what are you doing now? You're bearing the tabernacle of these false gods. You have completely changed allegiance somehow. So no wonder we'll have to begin again and send you back to Egypt, or in this case, off to Assyria. A scattering that hopefully will wake you up and eventually bring you to a gathering. 
And don't think you can run or hide, no matter how many summer or winter houses you have to hole up in. Chapter 6 gives that sense of there's no escaping this if you don't repent. In verse 1 and 2, woe to them that are at ease in Zion. And that's one thing prosperity seems to bring, right? The getting rich, the waxing fat, the kicking ourselves out of the church and going to hell, to borrow Brigham's language once again. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion and trust in the mountain of Samaria. Here we are, God's chosen people in his chosen land. Of course, he'll choose to let us stay here. Well, not so fast. Those that trust in the mountain of Samaria, which are named chief of the nations, to whom the house of Israel came, pass ye into Kalna and see. And from thence go ye to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms, or their border greater than your border? See, all the cities he listed there, Kalna, Hamath, Gath, those are cities of the Syrians or the Philistines. And in, through much of Israelite history, those two kingdoms were stronger than you. And yet they are going to fall to the Assyrians. And if they do, don't you think you will? How do you think you're going to escape a similar fate if you've fallen into similar sins? Oh, because you're Israel. Ah, I see. I see. Yeah. Because you're there in the mountains of Samaria. And since you're God's chosen people, of course, he's going to preserve you. Well, not if you're not preserving your side of the covenant. Again, membership alone doesn't do anything. It's about real discipleship. So for you, remember how he couches this, for you who are at ease in Zion, I'm good. I'm here. I'm in the right location. Forget lifestyle. I'm in the right address. Forget attributes. Do you remember this verse from 2 Nephi 28? When Nephi is walking you through some of Satan's strategies for the last days. On the one hand, he says he's going to stir some up to anger against that which is right. He's going to get them all riled up and there's just going to be this kind of activism and I'm just going to take down anything that's in, its, in my way. Well, that's on the one extreme. On the other, since Satan typically tries to use two different extremes to, to fight his battles, if the activism and the animosity and, and work them up to a frenzy doesn't work, then what's the other alternative? Well, just lull them away. Just sing them to sleep. Let them be at ease in Zion. <laughs> and then they won't do anything. That's what he says in 2 Nephi 28:21. Others will he pacify. Think of pacifier there. And lull them away. Think of lullaby there. Into carnal security. That they will say, all is well in Zion. Yea, Zion prospereth, all is well. And thus the devil cheateth their souls and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. I saw details in that verse when I was a young father I'd never noticed before. Because, man, when your kids, when your children are small and you just want them to fall asleep so that you can too, you do everything you can to lull them away into a sense of carnal security. You're, you're, you, put, you put a pacifier in their mouth. That's others he will pacify. You sing them a lullaby and try to rock them to sleep. That's lulling them. You swaddle them up so they're in this tight-packed state of carnal security. And then you slowly try to lower them into the crib and gently remove your hands and silently tiptoe out of the room. You are, talk about being careful. Understand what the devil's doing? 
he's rocking the baby to sleep. And if you're not guilty of the extremism, then perhaps you're guilty of the apathy. Thinking that, oh, we're doing fine. We're members of the church. Everything's going to go well. If, in some ways, no wonder Amos is crying repentance. Nothing wakes up one baby, one sleeping baby, like another crying one. And so Amos crying out, the lion roaring, hoping to wake up the kids so that they are not at ease in Zion. In verse 3 through 6, he says, Ye that put far away the evil day. And that's part of being at ease in Zion also. Yeah, maybe the piper will come, but not now. I mean, we're going to put it, we're going to postpone it. We'll put the evil day as far away as we possibly can. Those that cause the seat of violence to come near. That's the opposite. That's the irony there. You're putting away the evil day, but this is going to backfire because what you're trying to avoid is going to come back to bite you. Push back the evil day. Oh, no, no, no. The violence is going to come right up close. He goes on. That lie upon beds of ivory. Remember he mentioned beds earlier? And I told you that later he'd tell you what they're made of? Well, here they made their beds and they're going to lie in them. These beds of ivory would suggest incredible wealth. And sure enough, archaeologists have discovered hundreds of ivory fragments among the ruins of Samaria. Oh, they couldn't take it with them, could they? So, you that lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches. Couches was mentioned in that same earlier phrase too. And eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall that chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves instruments of music like David, that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph? How's that for ease in Zion? How's that for conspicuous consumption? How's that for living in the lap of luxury and feeling like, like that will protect you? when things go, go amiss. No, if, if you're not grieved for the affliction of Joseph, if you don't take your birthright seriously and realize that there are members of the family that are struggling or suffering, remember what the birthright is for? The only reason you got a double portion, Joseph, is you're responsible for the rest of the family. You better hope that double portion is enough because now every unmarried sister, your mother, now that she's a widow, that falls on you. And so the responsibility of Joseph is to make sure that the whole house of Israel is provided for. And the responsibility of the house of Israel is to make sure that the entire human family is provided for. Instead, do we see the affliction of Joseph, our own people, and not care? Not grieve, not do anything to make a difference. Well, why would I change it? I'm the one that caused it, okay? Uh, they have no bed to lie in because I'm lying on my bed of ivory. That's part of the problem. So verse 7 and 8, Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive. Sure enough, it would be the rich that would be the first to be removed. We saw that with the Babylonian invasion, same with the Assyrians. Let's get rid of the people with the most potential, the people who should have been leading well, let's lead them away first. And the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. The party's over. The Lord God has sworn by himself, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor 
the excellency of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore will I deliver up the city with all that is therein. There again, some strong language. I hate your sacrifices because they're not sacrificial. They're not sincere. They're not selfless. They are totally self-serving. And as a result, I can't stand them. Get them out of my face. I hate those palaces. It's like King Solomon who spent more time building his own palace than he did building the house of the Lord. Remember he had lions on the steps up to his throne. And what was his throne made of? Ivory. Well, here's these ivory couches that have cast off the lion of the tribe of Judah, that have oppressed the people that he cares so much about. Talk about abhorring the excellency of Jacob. It's not excellent to the God of Jacob. In verse 9 and 10, he then says, It shall come to pass, if there remain ten men in one house, that they shall die. And a man's uncle shall take him up, and he that burneth him to bring out the bones out of the house, and shall say unto him that is by the sides of the house, Is there yet any with thee? And he shall say, No. Then he shall say, Hold thy tongue, for we may not make mention of the name of the Lord. Now that's an odd verse. Really hard to make sense of. Until you unpack it and realize what he's describing here is... Picture a house, 10 people in it, they all die. Well, was that everyone? Was that everyone in the house? I'm not sure. This uncle, uh, there's not even close family left to be able to bury the dead. So it's going to be this next of kin. And this uncle comes in to go take the bones out of the house. He that burneth him to bring out the bones. Picture contagion so intense that they're afraid, I'm not going to take out the bodies. Uh, Then I'll catch something. And so let's just burn everything, cleanse the house in that way. And then we'll, once it's, it's clean and done, and it's no longer dangerous for us, I, I can go in and remove the bones and at least give the bones a proper burial. Well, in the midst of that, he sees somebody there in the house. It's like, well, maybe there was 11. Are you a survivor? Are you, are you alone in the house? Are you, is there anyone else? And he says, no, this is it. But almost like... No, I swear on the name of God. Or no, but please, in the name of God, have mercy upon me. Some, something there that w- makes the person, the survivor, want to invoke the name of God. Because it's in response to that, that even before he gets there, this uncle stops him in his tracks. He says, no, 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 don't even mention God. Don't, don't even say it. Which might suggest either it's so far gone that I... God has become my enemy. Don't you dare invoke his name. Look at what he's done to us. There's nothing left. Or the other possibility. It's far too late to invoke the name of deity now. Why didn't we call upon the God of Israel when there was still time? When the lion was still roaring? When we had time to repent? Because we did not turn to him in our prosperity... It's completely unfair and selfish to turn to him in our adversity. So no, do not make mention of the God of Israel now. It's too late for us. He says in 11 and 12, For behold, the Lord commandeth, and he will smite the great house with breaches, and the little house with clefts. 
In other words, no dwelling will be left untouched by this coming destruction. Everything will be left in ruins. Great houses, right? Summer houses, winter houses, pleasant palaces. There will be cracks in the wall since there have been cracks in the foundation from the beginning. Then he says, shall horses run upon the rock? Will one plow there with oxen? These are more rhetorical questions, and the answers are all no. No, horses won't run along steep cliffs. They're not going to be running along the rocks. Oxen are not going to plow. They're in the cliffs of the mountains. So what are we going to do? Where can we turn? He says, ye have turned judgment into gall. Remember earlier he said you turned judgment into wormwood? Same idea. Wormwood, bitter. Gall, bitter. And then he intensifies it. And the fruit of righteousness, you've turned that into hemlock, and that's poisonous. You have poisoned your own well, and there will be no living water for you coming out of it. He started these verses with rhetorical questions. In circumstances like this, you really think your horses will run and your oxen will plow? Oh no, and I'm a herdsman, I know. You really think you'll be able to escape the consequences of your decisions? Just because you're the house of Israel and you happen to be living in the promised land, you're not keeping your promises. So God can't keep his. That's what he gets at at the end of this chapter. Verse 13 and 14, he says, Ye which rejoice in a thing of naught, which say, Have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? Folks, this is trusting in nothing. Ye rejoice in a thing of naught. Your membership, there's no discipleship along with it. So that's a thing of naught. The promised land, you're not keeping promises. So the covenant is a thing of naught. That's what you've turned it into. So taking your horns, like the horns of the altar. No, remember he cut those off. There's no home base. There's no place to escape and feel safe in sanctuary. Because it's a sanctuary of standards and you're not keeping the standards. It's safe in the confines of covenant, but you've broken the covenant. So there is no security here. No wonder he says in conclusion, Behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hemath unto the river of the wilderness. The Assyrian Empire is on its way. Across the whole extent of Israel, there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, no place to escape, there is no sanctuary. There's no hope if you will not heed the words of the prophets or the roar of the lion. What Amos says from that point forward, once those first six chapters are done and he has he zeroed in on the target, three transgressions, four transgressions, and gone down the list of the Syrians and the Philistines and the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and, and yes, you of Judah and oh yes, Israel, you thought you were off the hook? Oh no, there's going to be hooks in your noses and in your jaw. They're going to be dragging you back to Assyria. You're the ones that have to change. You have to change vertically and reconnect with God. You have to change horizontally and care for the poor and the needy instead of oppressing them. You are your brother's keepers. So act like keepers. Better yet, act like brothers. Change. Repent. Hear the roar of the lion because the watchmen on the tower never cry wolf. These, these woes and these warnings, these, these calls of judgment, listen up, hear the alarm sound.
Those are, that's the first six chapters of Amos. They're powerful. And then by the end, the last three chapters, seven, eight, nine, he begins to share his visions. Uh, what is Amos seeing? He's seen Assyria off in the distance. But the way chapter 7 begins, there are five visions of judgment that begin to unfold, one after the next after the next. And they are increasing in intensity as they go on. Again, kind of turn up the volume the longer we listen to these cries of repentance because the baby's sleeping, remember? Satan's rocking the baby to sleep. Those at ease in Zion have a pacifier. Let me sing you a lullaby. Let me carefully lead you down to hell. I mean, you're there safe in the palace in Samaria, right? It's safe in the promised land, promises or no promises. Well, no promises on their part, then no promise on God. So how's this for vision number one? Amos 7, 1 through 3, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me. And that's kind of where you get this, the clue, oh, a vision is being given. You'll see that same phrase beginning almost all of them. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, Behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. This is just like the locust infestation in Joel. This is just like the plague of locusts in the Exodus. And it's happening here. Here come the grasshoppers. It came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise Remember, I have fallen and I can't get up. There's no one there to lift me. Everyone has lowered themselves to my level. So by whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. This is the prophet Amos interceding for the people, just like Moses did in the wilderness, That just like so many prophets have done ever since. Don't forget how small they are. And as a result, the Lord repented of this. And said, it shall not be, saith the Lord. Now the Joseph Smith translation corrects that somewhat. The Lord said concerning Jacob, Jacob shall repent for this. Therefore I will not utterly destroy him, saith the Lord. You see, the idea behind that JST is the confusion over the word repent. Wait, God repents? He's done something wrong and he needs to change? No, God doesn't wear sackcloth and ashes. We do. The idea, though, is turning in repenting. And God will turn away the consequences if we'll turn away what's bringing them on. He'll turn away the harvest if we'll stop sowing what we don't want to reap. And so that's the idea there. But the idea behind the whole vision is here come the grasshoppers. Here come the locusts. There's going to be nothing left. Oh, but then Amos intercedes, as prophets always do. He pleads on behalf of the people. You see, that prophets are this ultimate in between, in, go-between. And facing the people, he's pleading on behalf of God, please change and repent. But then he turns back to God and pleads on behalf of the people, please forgive them and give them another, another chance. And that's the idea here. They're small. They don't know what they're doing. Please be merciful. So yes, the locusts won't devour everything. A remnant will, will remain. But Will they take advantage of their chance to repent? We'll see, because a second vision then unfolds in verse 4 through 6. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me. There's the tip-off that another vision has begun. And behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire. There it is, always being kindled. And it devoured the great deep and did eat up a part. If it ate up a part, then some of it's still left. There's the remnant remaining. 
Then said I, here he is again interceding, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. Amos really does love to repeat ideas in hopes of riveting our attention. And the Lord repented for this. This also shall not be, saith the Lord God. And again, we get the same kind of correction from the JST we saw in the previous verse. Uh, yes, I will turn away my wrath if they will turn away from their sins. But will they? Well, let's see. In fact, let's see a third vision, verse 7 through 9. This one is one of my favorites. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. You see, for the first two visions, the Lord did say, I'll turn away the consequences if they'll change. But talk about crying wolf. <laughs> it's not the prophet that's doing it. It's the people that are. It's the people that are pretending to change. No, 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 no. Just give me one more chance. Sound like Pharaoh? Oh, I promise this time, if you'll just get rid of those locusts, I'll let your people go. But as soon as the locusts are gone, forget about that. Every time we suffer, here comes the fire, fire and hail, as the plagues of Egypt included. Oh, please turn those away and I'll let your people go. But he wouldn't. Then fine. It's judgment time. Or to be closer to the symbolism of vision three, it's Time to see if you are measuring up. You see, a plumb line is a string with some weight at the bottom. And since gravity is what gravity is, it will always establish a perfectly vertical line. That way, if you're building a wall like the type the Lord is standing upon, if you're building a, a building like your pleasant palaces, your summer homes, your winter homes, your sanctuaries, Let's see if they measure up. Let's see if they're perfectly vertical. Because if they're lean, and then the shaking comes, guess what happens? They fall. I, Ezekiel saw an angel with a rod that was his measuring stick. Let's see if the temple measures up. Let's see if the people measure up. Let's see if the altar measures up. And let's measure the, the living water that flows from the temple. Uh, we talk about... Oh, levels in our day. A tool that is used to see if something is perfectly horizontal. A plumb line, is it perfectly vertical? A chalk line, is it perfectly straight? The word canon, as in canon of scripture, is from the Greek word meaning measuring stick. So our canon, our scriptures, are what we measure ourselves against. We call them the standard works. Well, that works also because it's the standard by which we measure our works. Do they measure up? We can even think of things like carpenter's squares or even compasses to see if things are perfectly square or perfectly round. It's amazing what a compass and square can do to establish good construction. And to see God, this is, like I said, this is my favorite of the, of the first four visions. You can't beat the fifth. But the, my favorite of the first four, because 
he really is trying to help Israel see in vision what I'm asking for. A straight vertical line. Will you look up to me and live? Will you seek me other than these other instead of these other things? Will you love the things that are good and hate the things that are evil? Because again, if you are leaning, what happens to the building? If it's poorly constructed, then it will be condemned. I'm just trying to see if you will pass inspection. Along those lines, he then says in verse 10 and 11, we're not ready for the fourth vision yet. We're still going to deal and, and dwell on this, this third vision. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel. So we've got church turning to state. And this priest is tattling. Okay, whistleblower here. He says, Amos hath conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Sound a little like John chapter 6? When Jesus has said some difficult things in his way, crying repentance, letting them know that he's here to free them from sin, not from Rome. And I'm not going to multiply, I'm not going to multiply loaves and fishes anymore for just free treats at the end of every sermon. And the disciples decide, ah, these are hard sayings. Who can hear them? And they begin to leave. Well, here's the priest, false priest, saying to the king, those are hard sayings what Amos is getting at. He's telling me that I'm worshiping at the wrong place and I'm the priest of Bethel. I've got my golden calf here. What's he trying to do? So it's an affront to me. You should take it as an affront to you also, almighty king, because he's threatening you with destruction. Well, no, he's warning you that you're bringing on self-destruction, but oh well, that's not what Amaziah cares about. Amaziah just wants to keep the baby asleep. So quit crying repentance, Amos, or you're going to defeat the purposes behind my pacifiers and lullabies. Next in verse 12 and 13, Amaziah says to Amos, O thou seer, go, flee thee away into the land of Judah. In other words, go home, back to where you came from, and there eat bread, and prophesy there, but prophesy not again anymore at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel. It's the king's court. Just leave us in peace. Sound like the wicked priests of King Noah that were telling Abinadi, get out of here. We're publishing peace. We're trying to let people eat, drink, and be merry. We're trying to lull them away into a sense of, false sense of security. Carnal security, that is. Why would you wake people up to the distance between where they should be living and where they happen to be living. Again, these are the, this is the same approach of people that are telling the Nazarites, go drink wine. Quit establishing this distance between where we should be and where we are. This is the same approach of those that are telling the prophets, the prophets prophesy not. It's exactly what he's saying to Amos here. Just go do it somewhere else among your own people. This is precisely what the Jewish leaders were saying to Jesus in his day, the apostles in their day. It's what society and even members of the church are saying to the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve right now. Quit talking about those issues. In verse 14 and 15, how is Amos to respond? He answers and says to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son. 
but I was in herdman, a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. You think I asked for this job? I didn't want it. I wasn't born into it. I'm not a court prophet like Isaiah is. I'm not the descendant of, I'm not a descendant of, of prophets. This is not the family business. Our family, our family business that barely has a business at all. I am poor. I'm a herdsman. I was following the flock. Oh, maybe that's why God called me. Because I was a good shepherd and that's what he needed. And like in Ezekiel 34, where he chewed out the, the shepherds, the so-called shepherds of Israel, they were only feeding themselves. He decided to send forth shepherds after his own heart instead. Well, that's, maybe that's why I'm here. I did not ask for this responsibility. Like I said before, prudence would have demanded that I keep my mouth shut. And that's exactly what you're demanding right now. Well... Right now is not the time to be prudent. Right now is the time to be brave. And Amos was. When he describes himself as a herdman, there's the good shepherd side of things. I'm trying to shepherd the flock in the direction they should go. I'm trying to protect them from the, the bears and the lions and the serpents that are out there. I'm trying to, to solve not just symptoms, but cure disease. And then the gatherer of sycamore fruit, I'm just looking to find the righteous remnant. The, grain, the, the, the grains of goodness that remain. What's interesting is sycamore fruit, if you look at the Hebrew, this is not the, uh, the, uh, the sycamore tree we would picture. This is a wild fig tree. That's the kind he's talking about. And when he says he's a gatherer of it, on the one hand, is this kind of like gleaning, like Ruth and Naomi did, that he's poor, and so I'm just trying to find anything to subsist upon. No wonder he's got such concern for the poor. He's one of them. But there's more than that also, because it's not just gatherer of sycamore fruit. A better translation could be a dresser of wild figs. And by dressing, they often mean either like cutting it. Depends on what scholar you're reading. Some say he's cutting fruit. Uh, so by exposing the inside, it, it helps it ripen better because the wild fig is kind of bitter. Talk about wormwood, talk about gall. But if you'll do that, it'll ripen a little bit more and at least it's somewhat edible. Other scholars say these, these wild figs can often be infested with, with insects. And by dressing them, by cutting and making an incision, then it can help force the, the bugs out, these insects. Now, that sounds pretty nasty. That's the kind I think I'd return to the supermarket or just not buy from the produce section to begin with. But, but if that's all you have and there's no food, we're getting closer and closer to talk of a famine in the land. And who's going to help us through it? Well, a dresser of wild figs. Someone who is like the servants in the allegory of the olive tree, doing everything he can to bring forth good fruit from a tree that has, that has grown wild. Amos is the perfect person for this, even though he didn't ask for it and didn't sign up for it and didn't, didn't feel like he'd been born into the situation from which God would want to call someone. But he was willing to give it all up. 
I was called by God. I was doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing. And he drew me out of that world to build on what I had learned there to make a difference in his world. This is calling Amos away from the sycamore, away from the herd. This is calling Russell M. Nelson out of the operating room, or Dallin H. Oaks out of the courtroom, or Henry B. Eyring out of the classroom. Will we make room for God when he calls us to build his kingdom? I'm so grateful for Amos in doing this. He, he did come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And not just where he was going, but where he'd come from. And to turn back and see his past as preparation for his present. I am the man for this job. So Azariah, or Amaziah, excuse me. Amaziah, I will not hold silent. This is Jeremiah with the fire in the bones. This is, I have to teach, I have to cry repentance. I'm a watchman on the tower, and I'm here to wake the baby. I'm a lion, and I'm here to roar. The roaring goes on in verse 16 through 17. Now therefore hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Well, how's this? Therefore thus saith the Lord, Thy wife shall be an harlot in the city. Thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword, and thy land shall be divided by line. No plumb line this time. This is a line to divide inheritances. Thou shalt die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. That's what's coming unless you repent. There's no escaping these consequences. They'll affect your whole family. Your wife becoming a, a harlot because there's no other way to make ends meet, you're gone. Your children falling by the sword, you have nothing left to hold on to. That palace that you were putting all your efforts in, it's been demolished. The land of your inheritance is now being subdivided for some new occupants that have come in. This is what is coming, and there are no pieces left for you to pick up. That's preparation for what we see in chapter 8, where the fourth of his five visions opens up. Verses 1 through 3, you'll see the whole thing. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me. Same tip-off phrase. Behold a basket of summer fruit. Perfect for Amos to recognize, right, as a gatherer of fruit. He says to Amos, What seest thou? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said unto me, The end is come upon my people of Israel. There's actually a, a Hebrew pun there because the word for summer fruit sounds a lot like the word for the end. Okay, So the end is come. I will not again pass by them anymore. So no more intercession on your part. It's not going to help at all. The people won't change. So I can't. The songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day. How's that for music turning into noise, saith the Lord God? There shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. This is the law of the harvest, and harvest time has come. Usually harvest was met with songs of joy, because we have food to make it through the winter. But no, the summer is ended. Harvest time has come. 
judgment is being passed, you have no food to bring into the garner, it's going to be a rough winter. Not just cold, but empty, with nothing to survive upon. No, no wonder there's no songs of joy. This is the sound of silence, and it's haunting. In verse 4 through 6, there is something to hear, though. Hear this. O ye that swallow up the needy, that's how hungry you are, just trying to gorge yourself on other people. You've objectified, you've commodified, and now you're eating them. You've swallowed up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail saying, When will the new moon be gone, that we may sell corn, and the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small, and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver, and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. Now, this is one of the most fascinating passages in all of Amos. I love it. And if you unpack it phrase by phrase, man, it is applicable in our day, in our materialistic, worldly day. What you're seeing here, as usual, is the dehumanization and commodification of the poor. When he talks about swallowing up the needy and making the poor of the land to fail, that's what you're seeing here. They're, they're buying the poor for silver, the needy for a pair of shoes. We saw that already. Like, you need another pair of shoes already? Uh, did you wear the other one out? I'm like, no, I wore the people out to get it. And then, well, there's a new style. It's the new upgrade. It's the latest fashion. And I'll just get rid of those shoes. I just need a new pair. And so I need the needy to get them for me. Ah, it's scary here. This is the exploitation of the working class. But couple that horizontal sin with a vertical sin, because you're really annoyed that God is getting in the way. Uh, and not just in terms of his commandments, like, I shouldn't be doing this, but like, ah, to, to honor God, quote-unquote, honor him, by going through the motions of worship, because there's these days of worship I can't work. All I want is days of work. I mean, not days of work for me, <laughs> mind you. I want to just be sitting in my, in my palace. But days of work for the working class, because... Any day they take off is a day they're not enriching me. And that really annoys me. It's what I can't stand about new moons, that's a holy day, or Sabbaths that come every week. Are you kidding me? I can't exploit the poor one day in seven. Because I want to exploit them seven out of seven. This is so much like uh, the Christmas Carol or Ebenezer Scrooge just wants to exploit the work of Bob Cratchit every single day. And when he asks for Christmas off, he basically says, you have to work harder than the next day. Because you got to make it up to me, because otherwise you're just picking my pocket every 25th of December. Well, at least that's only one day a year. These, these poor Jews that have to let their working their workers off the hook one day every week and then new moon every month i mean talk about holidays talk about holy days you see they're caught here because they're the box checkers remember they're going through the motions they're telling god hey i'm doing what i'm asked i'm honoring the sabbath begrudgingly i'm allowing my workers to take the day off 
But you see what they're doing through it all? Can we just end that? Can we get past that? Can we turn every day into a day of exploitation? There's even phrases in there that, again, are so similar to what happens in our day. When he says they make the shekel great, that's overcharging. Because the thing is, I'll give you an ephah of food if you give me a shekel of, of silver, of gold, or whatever it might be. Okay, uh, So that we're just exchanging. But what the merchant class is doing is expanding the shekel. In other words, you have to give me something more. And then shrinking the ephah. It's fascinating. Make the ephah small and the shekel great. In our day, shekel great, that's inflation. And ephah small, that's shrinkflation. Inflation, let's charge more than we used to or what it's worth. Shrinkflation, let's trick them by just, well, we can charge the same thing, but we'll make it a smaller, a smaller uh, commodity. We'll make the ephah small. On top of that, let's falsify the balances by deceit. That way, even when they think it's fair, <laughs> it, is, it isn't. It's always in our favor. That's cooking the books. That's price gouging. That's just dishonesty in our business affairs. And then when he says we'll sell the refuse of the wheat, the kind of stuff that we probably shouldn't be selling because it's past the expiration date, well, just rub off the expiration date or don't even include one. Or let's water it all down and take what we have and just add more water because the water is most of the weight. And if we sell by weight and by volume, <laughs> there'll be none the wiser. Let's not do a good job of of threshing and winnowing, because we don't want to give them all good grain. If we let a little tares in with the wheat or a little chaff in with the grain, eh, so be it. That's what we mean by selling the refuse. Are we cutting corners? Are we giving an honest day's work for an honest day's wage? If we are the working class, are we paying an honest day's labor for an honest day's work? If we're the, the merchant class? I mean, Understand what I'm getting at, what Isaiah, excuse me, what Amos is getting at? We live in a day of commercialism and consumerism. Uh, Babylon, as in terms of the merchant city, is with us even more than Babylon by way of beast and, and scarlet whore. The, the economic, the, 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 the checkbook, the wallet, our bank accounts are such a sensitive part. And it's, where, it's one of the places where the adversary is really trying to work his way in. Be, keep an eye out for those kinds of things. Uh, verse 4 through 6 is so true to our, to our co consumeristic, commercialistic, materialistic culture. In verse 7 through 8, he says, The Lord has sworn by the excellency of Jacob, Surely I will never forget any of their works. Compare that to, I, the Lord, will remember those works no more, those sins no more, if you'll just repent of them. Here's the problem, they're not repenting. So shall not the land tremble for this, and everyone mourn that dwelleth therein? It shall rise up wholly as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. Your wickedness is raining consequences upstream. Your lack of repentance is weakening the dam. And whatever it is that is keeping you from this flood of consequence, don't you understand what's on its way? In Isaiah, Assyria was described as a river. 
and it would come and flood Israel. We're seeing the same thing here with Amos. Who then says in verse 9 and 10, It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon. I will darken the earth in the clear day. There will be darkness, that is, when there should have been light. How's that for a sign of the times? When the sun is darkened, the moon turned to blood, the stars fall from heaven, or don't, don't refuse to give forth light? That's exactly what Amos is describing. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. So just like there's darkness when there should have been light, now there's sorrow when there should have been joy. This sounds like the dreadful day instead of the great day of the Lord. Sure enough, I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins, baldness upon every head. I will make it as the morning of an only son and the end thereof as a bitter day. Earlier we saw that this was an evil day. Now we see it as a bitter day. It's a day of lamentation because it's a day of destruction. As if it were your only child, which means there is no future. There is no hope left. He says in verse 11 and 12, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, this is the verse the missionaries always quote, but did you see how we got here? This sackcloth and ashes, this dark and mournful day. Because of what? Because there's nothing for us here. It's a famine in the land. But not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. You see, Israel was soon to face a physical famine, especially when the Assyrians laid siege to Samaria, and there's no food getting in, and how desperate they would be for some kind of sustenance, but they couldn't, they couldn't access it. Uh, good thing Hezekiah dug Hezekiah's tunnel and at least allowed water to come in under the city walls. What Amos is describing here, and why missionaries love to quote it, though, is because that physical famine is only the first, and it's the lesser of the two, because there will come a spiritual famine that will be far more devastating. In some ways, Israel will get what they deserve because they'll get what they asked for. Remember Amaziah? Amos, go home. We don't want you to prophesy. Okay, the day will come. There, no, there will be no one here to prophesy. When those say to the, to the, when they say to the Nazarites, drink wine, because we don't want you standing out in difference and make us feel bad that we're living at some low, lower level. When, they, when we say to the, the rising generation, do not rise in righteousness. No, don't prophesy. Don't lean into those spiritual gifts that you've been given. Please fall short of your potential. Well, the day will come that you'll get what you wanted. And there won't be people to lift you since no one's living at a higher level. Oh, so many of these words and warnings that Amos has already given come back and coalesce there in chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. There will be a famine in the land of the word of God. You will be desperate for it. 
you will wonder, why isn't God speaking anymore? Why isn't he sending any watchmen on the tower? Why no good shepherds to feed the flock? Why no living water to quench our thirst? Why no bread of life? Because you rejected it. Because you didn't want it. You muzzled every lion. You silenced every watchman. How does the book of Malachi end? Right, at, right after the end? Look at your King James. And it wasn't just King James. I looked at a bunch of older Bibles and the Bishop's Bible and the Geneva Bible and all these old ones. At the end of it, it warns the end of the prophets. And we have this intertestamental period for about four and a half centuries until the Lord tries again by, well, God tries again by sending his son and calling apostles and beginning again. But then there's famine after that too. And there's an end of the apostles and a great apostasy that begins shortly thereafter. To understand what he's getting at here, again, the imagery is so powerful because famine and, and hunger and thirst drive you crazy. That's why Jesus will talk about those that hunger and thirst after righteousness and just doing anything to, they want to be filled. Here, people are hungering and thirsting and they are desperate because they're searching everywhere, east to north to east and sea to sea. In fact, they're getting increasingly desperate because where it begins with them wandering from sea to sea, it ends with them running to and fro. With whatever remaining energy they have, they are desperately seeking any kind of sustenance, but they can't find it. That's actually an interesting detail also. Because I remember as a missionary, when I would teach about the apostasy, a famine in the land, a lack of the word of the Lord from authorized servants, apostles, and prophets. I remember often there would be people that say, oh no, we, we would usually quote Second Thessalonians. Because there, in Spanish especially, Paul uses the word apostasia. Okay? That there will be a falling away first, is how the King James translators gave it to us in English. But in La Reina Valera, it's una apostasia. Okay? That's what a falling away is. Uh, and for us, when we grew up in the church and think apostasy is this complete uh, institutional absence uh, of authorized servants, there will still be individual revelation, but not institutional revelation. There will not be uh, an authorized kingdom of God upon the earth. We see it prophesied throughout Scripture. We see it in the book of Revelation, again, uh, Thessalonians, here in, in Amos. But I remember meeting many a good Catholic that would say, oh yeah, there's been a falling away. What do you think the Protestant Reformation was? Check the box on, on the prophecy in 2 Thessalonians and, and we're good. The man of sin has been revealed. Thank you, Martin Luther. Uh, but the Catholicism has stayed strong throughout it all. To which a, latter, uh, to which a Protestant would say, oh no, the, the need for a Reformation came because there was a falling away from primitive pure and pure New Testament Christianity. Hmm, okay, so both sides are accusing the other of being the fulfillment of the apostasy. Whereas both would admit that at least was Christianity present throughout it all. Well, that is why to me Amos 8 is so important. Because if we're talking about authorized servants, if we're talking about prophets, true watchmen on the tower, true sources of living water and bread of life, and there aren't any, that 
even if you, I mean, you'd think if you went from north to east and ran from sea to sea, you'd find something if it were out there. You'd find some source of bread or water. I mean, doesn't it rain on some cities after all? And therefore the other cities can come and get some grain there? Well, not if the famine is so widespread that it becomes universal. Not if the apostasy is so deep it becomes a great apostasy that not even a reformation can cure, but a restoration is required. If 2 Thessalonians says there will be an apostasy, Amos 8 suggests just how widespread it will be. And again, people will be desperately seeking to be delivered from the situation that they've been asking for. I don't want prophets. Amos, go home. And then you get what you asked for and eventually come to a point. I would do anything for an Amos to return to us. That dresser of wild figs at least had something for us to eat. And that shepherd was a good one trying to herd us home. Well, keep reading. Verse 13 and 14. In that day, and that's always the heads up for the latter days, in that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst. Of course they will. There's famine in the land. They that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise up again. When he mentions thy God, O Dan, and the manner of Beersheba, Dan is the northern limit of Israel, and Beersheba is the southern limit of Israel, as far as what God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From north to south, from Dan to Beersheba. And everywhere we go, sea to sea, wandering, running, looking for the word of God, no, even as far as Dan or as far as Beersheba, there's not... You've fallen and there is never rising up again. And worst of all, so this is an expansion of what we just saw in 11 and 12. But worst of all, who does it affect most? The young. The ones in most desperate need of sustenance. I'm a growing boy, I would say, as a teenager when I wanted to eat more than anybody else. But there's truth to that. If you're a fair virgin, if you're a young man, we're talking about our sons and our daughters that Joel promised would someday prophesy. Well, Amos is giving us the opposite. And sadly, who in our current day, don't even think about Middle Ages or great apostasy, think right now and people apostatizing from the church or from religion at all, who's leaving in bigger numbers than any other group, the young, fair virgins, young men, people God had intended to be kings and queens and priests and priestesses, a holy nation, a peculiar people, Nazarites, people with high standards and covenant keepers. And this is what we're left with. That's why I'm so grateful that in that day of Amos is met with the in that day of Joel. 
that God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh and our sons and daughters will prophesy. They will, the gifts of God will return. That's what I'm working on and working for, as are you. Amos chapter 9, then, the final chapter we have in this beautiful little book, gives us the fifth and final vision. We've had one through four already, locusts and fire, the two that would devastate and destroy everything. But there's a remnant. Then the third and fourth, the plumb line and the basket of summer fruits. It's harvest time. Will we measure up? The fifth and final is the most important of the visions because it's a vision of the Lord himself. It goes from verse 1 through verse 6, but look at them one by one. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, a place of sacrifice. Is it true sacrifice that we're offering, though, or merely going through the motions? The Lord stood there and he said, Smite the lintel of the door that the posts may shake and cut them in the head, all of them, and I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. This is strong language. This is more than a destroying angel. This is the destroying God. And the Lord is standing there telling him, smite the lintel and the, that the posts may shake. I, I had the plumb line. I stood on the wall. They don't measure up. And Assyria will come and level everything. The destroying angel cannot pass by because on this lintel and posts there is no blood of the lamb. They have not been making true sacrifices. They're annoyed by the time away that they have to take to make the sacrifices when they'd rather be making money for themselves. So no, this is shaking the building. This is earthquakes in diverse places. This is more signs of the times. And it was not built to code. It did not pass inspection. So it's been condemned. We use that word with buildings too. In verse 2 through 4, Though they dig into hell, thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. Though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, high mountain near the north of Israel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent and he shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword and it shall slay them. And I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Once again, we get this sense of there's, you can run, but you can't hide. There is no place to escape the all-seeing eye of God. Down to hell, up to heaven. Uh, up to Carmel, down to the depths of the sea. Even when you're scattered, even scattering isn't a, a permanent solution unless you change. Because I can still send the sword after you even in those scattered countries to which you've been brought. Then again, that's not the only sword that can find you there. Armor of God, the sword of the Spirit and of the Word. Yes, I will send for many fishers and many hunters, and they will hunt them in the mountains and the hills and the holes of the rock. They will cast out their net of the word. They will bring their sword of the spirit. It's interesting here, I will not come after you for good in your scattered state. But in the last days, he will. 
in the last days in hopes that scattering has served its purpose. He can then send hunters with new swords to help guide them home. The vision continues in verse 5 and 6, and this is actually our third and final doxology, the last chance to praise the Lord in these, in these chapters. The Lord God of hosts is he that toucheth the land. There he is standing on it right in front of me at the altar. It shall melt, and all that dwell therein shall mourn. How's that for fire coming, melting even the land itself? How's that for mourning over the consequences of our unrepented sin? It shall rise up wholly like a flood. Maybe, maybe only that can quench the fires of destruction. But it shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. And who's doing all this? Again, it's the Lord. It is he that buildeth his stories in the heaven and hath founded his troop in the earth. He that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Like I said, that was the third one. The third and final. Will it be third time the charm or three strikes and you're out? Have you come to know the Lord through the book of Amos? Have you seen who he is and what he's done? What he expects of us? How merciful he's willing to be, but how just he has to be if we don't change? The description of God in the book of Amos, even in these small doxologies, Oh, I hope that we're coming to see a Lord that is deserving of our praise, of our real worship, and of our heartfelt repentance. He then says in verse 7, Are ye not as children of the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel, saith the Lord? Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Syrians from Kerr? What's interesting there is he's, con he's connecting Israel to Ethiopia, to Egypt, to Philistia, to Syria, all these enemies, right? Well, enemies in their wickedness, but they're still children of God, just like you are. Again, it's not just that you're in the promised land that makes you immune to having to keep the promises. No, you need to live the gospel, keep the commandments, keep your covenant, because I care about all my children. If you'll change, I'll gather you out of the lands of your scattering, just like I brought up Israel out of Egypt the first time, I'll bring Israel out of Assyria the second time. But even bringing Philistines from Kaphtor, Syrians from Kerr, it's really interesting there. It's as if he's gathering non-Israelites, just like he's gathering Israelites. And didn't we see that in Jeremiah? That's the promise. Didn't, don't we see that in 1 Nephi 17? That God isn't playing favorites, even when he chooses a chosen people. He's looking for righteousness wherever he can find it. And he is condemning wickedness, no, no, no matter where that's found either. Amazing passage here. He then says in 8 and 9, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful nation, whether you're members of the church or not, whether you're Israelites or from some other kingdom. If it's a sinful kingdom, my eyes are upon you, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth. Again, that's what Nephi says to Laman and Lemuel. We've got to be more righteous than others, okay? Not just rest on our laurels thinking we're house of Israel. So I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. There's always that promise of a righteous remnant remaining. For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations like as corn is sifted in a sieve. 
yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. You see, that's the scattering of Israel, but remembering where every single Easter egg is hidden. That is sifting it like it's through a sieve, but knowing the location of every single grain. God doesn't lose a single one. Verse 10 shows the other hand, though. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. Yes, there are still some who are at ease in Zion, some who don't ever think the piper will ever come to be paid. He will. He's off on the horizon, dressed in Assyrian garb. But despite all of this scattering, there's been a lot of warning and woe and negativity and condemnation throughout the book of Amos so far. But despite it all, look at the hope that he holds out at the end. Verse 11 and 12, In that day, again, the latter day, will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen. The tabernacle? Oh, we're back to Moses. Oh, but David, aren't we getting to the temple? Yeah, we're getting there. That's the ultimate goal. But let's start, baby steps. Let's raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof. Let's fix what's been broken down. Let's pull out the plumb line and the level and the the measuring stick again. Let's rebuild. Let's restore. And what will God do? I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. So not just rebuilding your ruins, but expanding on to the remnants of Edom, even of all the heathen, surrounding nations. This is the promised land growing until it encompasses the earth. It's actually what happens as temples are being dedicated dotting the earth, establishing epicenters of holiness that then spread and converge until the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what we're trying to accomplish here. But it's, it's rebuilding. It's restoring. How did you feel when President Hinckley said, we're going to rebuild the Nauvoo Temple? And to think of raising up the ruins, that's incredible. To think about what happened in the days of Ezra and and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Haggai, who we'll meet in a couple of weeks, to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem after it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Remember the old timers that were weeping tears of joy because they remember what it was like before it was destroyed and now it's back again? What will it be like when temples dotting the earth include temples in old Jerusalem and new Jerusalem? Well, what will it be like to build up all those ruins, to close up all those breaches? You remember when Isaiah talks in chapter 58, which is his, his chapter on fasting, caring for the poor and the needy by knowing how they feel? He says this at the end of his chapter, Isaiah 58, verse 12, They that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Sound like raising up the ruins? Thou shalt raise up the foundation of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. That's closing up the breaches. That's repairing and restoring. It's fixing what was broken, finding what was lost. That's what atonement's all about. 
That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to do. And so he says in verse 13, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. Now for a herdsman uh, with a small flock, for a farmer that barely is able to find wild figs to dress, you can't ask for a better description of what heaven would look like to somebody like Amos than this. And for the poor, the working class, those who've been oppressed and are just trying to eke out some kind of an existence, it doesn't get any better than that. That plowman overtaking the reaper, it's like the, the, the cycle of harvest is happening so fast that you can't even keep up with it. And one group isn't even done with their job before the next one's ready to, to, to move on to the next. It's so productive. It's so fruitful. This is now a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm running out of jars to, to keep it all in. This, this is amazing. When he talks about mountains dropping sweet wine, hills melting, flowing forth, filling the granaries of God. He builds on that with verse 14 and 15. I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. You see, it's no longer planting and having others eat. It's no longer building a city and having somebody else move in. It's no, it's no longer the scattering by the Assyrians. It's gathering under the hands of the God of Israel himself. He's bringing everyone home. And the promise of all of this, you'll finally be able to rejoice in the fruits of your own labors. Actually, God will finally get to reap what he's been sowing all along. How's that for the days of Jezreel, like we saw in Hosea last week? Amos then ends in verse 15 with God saying, I will plant them upon their land. And they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. God will plant them. Thank you, Amos, for being a dresser of figs. I'll take it from here. Thank you, Amos, for being a herdsman and gathering the flocks. But they're my flocks, my herds, and I'll be their good shepherd. Thank you for raising your voice and roaring with the lions. But it's time for the lion to lie down with the lamb. And the Lord is both. To understand the goodness of God being extended here at the end of the book of Amos. And like I said, there's no better happy ending for a herdsman and farmer than this description. Pick your, your picture. Choose your metaphor. What works best for you? Because the Lord will use marriage as one and just happy and living happily ever after. Maybe it's parenthood and he'll talk about raising children and who hath begotten me these. Maybe it's construction and we think of pearly gates and, and streets of gold and mansions on high. All of those are simply symbolic. Because I think the reality of what God has waiting for us far surpasses what any symbol could possibly convey. 
So Amos, thank you for sharing your view of, of heaven. And every other prophet who has tried to, to, to depict what it is that God has to offer us, all of those will fall short. As Paul once said, that eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man that which God hath prepared for those that love him. It surpasses all understanding. So dream, but dream big. And then go beyond it <laughs> by infinity. And that is, what is God, that, that is what God is offering the faithful. Hold on to that as you, as you ponder the words of Amos, because many of them were hard to hear. Not the ending, though. That is a beautiful crescendo. Which is followed by the book of Obadiah. Just one short chapter. 21 verses, that's all we get. So what do we do with this one? Scholars and even Jewish writers have wondered because they do, we don't know anything about Obadiah. His name means servant of Jehovah, but that has also been used for several other people throughout Israelite history. It's not this particular Obadiah, but who is this particular one? Nobody knows. He doesn't say anything about himself. It's hard to even know what time period he's writing in. Our guess is that he was writing after the destruction of Judah, Jerusalem, by the Babylonians. Because his message is to the Edomites, and it's a message of woe to Edom. We saw it in Amos has some woe for Edom, Isaiah had some woe for Edom. Edom, it has a long history since it's Esau's descendants, just like Israel has a long history because they're Jacob's descendants. These are brothers that split over a birthright, and then their history unfolds. And because of some of the strong language Obadiah uses to warn the Edomites about their wickedness, that's where we, we feel, we guess, we're probably right, that he was writing after the destruction of Judah. Because those who survived and were carried captive into Babylon had some negative things to say about Edom also. Because Edom did not help. In fact, they hurt. Edom was rubbing it in. Edom was kicking a, a man when he was down. Edom was, was trying to take advantage of someone else's trials to get ahead themselves. And for someone that should have been their brother's keeper, that's the, most, that's the, most, the unkindest cut of all to borrow Shakespeare's language. So let's look at these 21 verses. Most, uh, as far as Jewish history is concerned, it's connected to the book of Amos. It's like, where do we put it? It's not in order chronologically. But since Amos talked about Edom near the end of his book, in chapter 9, the, the, the Jews collecting their scripture to create the book of the 12 thought, eh, Amos talked about Edom. Let's stick Obadiah in right there since he talks about Edom the whole way. And then we'll pick up uh, the pieces when we get on the other side. So that's some of the thought process behind the location of Obadiah in the book. So it gives the book of the 12 some semblance of continuity. Okay? But let's read verse by verse. Verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. So here's a visionary man being shown something from the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. So Edom is the focal point of this brief vision. We have heard a rumor from the Lord. You get a sense of God dropping hints here in this vision. 
and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. So I'm sending a messenger to try to, to ambassadors typically are trying to, to connect different kingdoms or to, to establish, some, establish some kind of diplomatic relationships. So here's an ambassador sent among the heathen, and here's this message. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her, against Edom, in battle. Hmm. So this is Obadiah's warning of woe against the Edomites. You see, Edom, like I said, should have been on Israel's side. This is Esau with Jacob. But they weren't. They acted more often like an enemy instead of a friend. Like I said, when the, when the people of Judah were carried captive into Babylon, and the Babylonians were like, hey, we hear you Jews like to sing songs of Zion. Love to hear some. And you remember Psalm 137, where it's like, how could we possibly sing songs of Zion when we're stuck here next to the rivers of Babylon? We can't do that. We're not in the mood. We're devastated that we're here. And in fact, more than devastated by being in Babylon, we are downright angry, bitter about the Edomites that did nothing to help us. They could have been on our side. And in fact, they... They became more of a hindrance than a help. And so do you remember how the 137th Psalm ends? It's brutal. Fast forward this part. Psalm 137, 7 through 9. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it. And not in terms of raise like lift it up. Raise it like tear it down. Tear down Jerusalem, even to the foundation thereof. You picture all these Edomites watching the Babylonians destroy the temple, and they're cheering them on. Like, not a stone upon another. Just get rid of the whole thing. So they go on. Oh, daughter of Babylon. And that's how they're describing Edom. You're no better than your wicked mother, you daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed. Babylon's going to be destroyed. Edom's going to be destroyed. Forget the whole thing. They say, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. How's that for the golden rule? I'll be stoked when I see you suffer what you've done to us. And then the worst part of it all. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Oh, there is no love loss between Judah and Edom. There's no love loss between Jacob and Esau. But that's tragic because those brothers, although they were divided, they reconciled. Why can't you? And so much of what Obadiah is going to give us in this beautiful little book is meant to reconcile brothers and to eliminate conflict between sisters, to help the family of God come back together again and be one in him and one with each other. Most people, most Latter-day Saints who study the book of Obadiah, if they study it at all, only look for the the last verse. I'll admit, the last verse is the best one. Uh, saviors on Mount Zion. But saving who and from what? Saving from, from what? We'll see it as we go. But keep it in context, Jacob and Esau. Keep in mind siblings and strife and needing to overcome it. He says in verse 2 through 4, Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. That's you, Edomites. You're nothing. Thou art greatly despised. You're looked down upon. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thinking that you were better. Nobody feels that way but you. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, 
whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Well, glad you asked, someone will. Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. Those verses sound so much like Isaiah 14 to me. Remember Isaiah 14? He's talking to the king of Babylon and, and chastening him for his pride. You think you're everything. You're trying to ascend up above all things. You're putting your throne on high. Reminds me of someone else named Lucifer. Someone who tried to usurp the throne of God and yet was cast down to the earth. And that's going to happen to you, king of Babylon. Here, it's going to happen to you, O daughter of Babylon, you king of Edom. Pride goeth before the fall, and you've got the pride. So get, guess what's coming? The fall. Verse 5 and 6. If thieves come to thee, if robbers by night, oh, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? No, how are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? What Obadiah is getting at there, even when thieves come, they usually don't carry off everything. They can't even carry it all. They will eventually have enough for that raid and they'll leave. You'll have something behind, left behind. And how about the grape gatherers? They always leave some behind for those who are gleaning to live off. But you, Esau, you Edomites, oh, even your hidden things are sought out. Everything's searched for. Edom, will, there'll be nothing left. In verse 7, all the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. They're pushing you, the ones that you're confederate with, your, your partners in crime, your allies, they're pushing you to the very limit. They've brought thee to the border. The men that were at peace with thee, these are supposed to be your friends. They deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread. So again, these, you know, we're breaking bread together. These are friends. We're just out eating. They have laid a wound under thee, and there is none understanding in him. It's as if Obadiah were asking the Edomites, who are you placing your trust in? These confederates, these partners in crime, these other surrounding nations. Where are you sending your ambassadors? Well, I'm sending an ambassador to you. Because the so-called friends that are out there, no, they are laying wounds in your sides. They're the type that will hurt more than help. Where should you be turning? He says in 8 through 10, Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom? an understanding out of the Mount of Esau. Now remember that phrase, Mount of Esau. Okay, It's going to come in handy by the end of this book. But here in the Mount of Esau, there's no understanding. He repeats the idea in the next verse, Thy mighty men, O Teman, which is a city among the Edomites, they shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. There's that same call to the mountain, but no one's left. It's total slaughter there. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. Can we make it any more obvious now that we're not just talking about Edomites and Israelites? We're talking about Esau and Jacob. We're talking about two brothers that should have been their brother's keepers, or at least their brother's brothers, 
can we take care of one, one another instead of cutting each other off and rejoicing in one another's afflictions? I think if we were to look back at our ancestors and honor them, we'd do a lot better job of honoring our fellow descendants of those common ancestors. It's interesting that for the last five or six years, there's been a lot more interfaith work done between the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Community of Christ. The former reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now those were two uh, communities that couldn't stand each other for a long, a long part of their history. But just recently, in fact, when the thoughts of having uh, interfaith dialogue between these two communities, these two restoration movements, the two biggest heirs of the restoration through Joseph Smith, when they started talking about the possibilities of interfaith dialogue, one BYU professor asked Elder Holland what he thought about it. And Elder Holland said, oh, I think Joseph and Hiram would be pleased to see this unfold. Since so much of the LDS church are descend leadership descended from Hiram and so much of the leadership of the, of the RLDS, the community of Christ, descended from Joseph, can we get the family back together, please? And yes, there's doctrinal differences and ecclesiastical impasses and things that we just don't see eye to eye on. But how would Father and Mother Smith feel if their descendants were mercilessly attacking each other instead of striving to get along despite their differences? Now that's, that's small fry as far as restoration communities compared to common descendants of, of Israel as when the Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom split and fought each other for centuries. Or go back another generation and go back to Isaac as he looks at his sons and sees Jacob and Esau and why can't you two get along? Go back a generation and go to Abraham and see Isaac and Ishmael and why can't you two get along? Go back a lot more generations and look at Adam and Eve and looking at any of their posterity, wondering, why can't you get along? There is no room and no reason for anti-Semitism in our world, Islamophobia in our world, prejudice, hatred. Do your family history. Follow the family tree and we will see common ancestry that ought to make us love each other as one another's keepers and one another's brothers and sisters. That's, to me, the greatest takeaway from the book of Obadiah. Can we eliminate all strife between siblings? Then verse 11 and 12. What caused the strife between Israel and Edom? In the day that thou stoodest on the other side. Doesn't that phrase remind you of the parable of the Good Samaritan? And why did it take a good Samaritan to step in to help this injured Jew? Because his own people, the priest and the Levite, stood on the other side, to borrow Obadiah's language. They passed by on the other side, as Jesus said. Keep reading, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, 
and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem. Again, this is when the Babylonians are coming. The strangers have come, carried them captive. These foreigners have entered into the city itself, casting lots upon Jerusalem to decide who's going to take what, uh, to destroy the walls, to tear down the temple. Nothing was left. And what did you do, Edom, brother Esau? Even thou wast as one of them. You acted like a stranger when you were part of the family. You acted like a foreigner when you were a fellow citizen. How could you do that to us? But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldst thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldst thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. But that's what you were guilty of the whole time. You looked on and did nothing. Worse than that, you rejoiced over our sufferings. Worse than that, you spoke proudly, like you were better than us and we were getting what we deserved. What kind of brother would do that? In verse 13 and 14, Thou shouldst not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. How could you try to pass judgment? You were just as guilty as we were. Your destruction was next on the list. Yea, thou shouldst not have looked on their afflictions in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldst thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldst thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. Obadiah is going through this litany of charges against the Edomites. These are all things you never should have done, but they're all things you did do. In our times of deepest distress, what did you do? You passed judgment. You looked at our affliction and refused to help. You did worse than not help. You hurt. You looted as soon as we had left. And as we were trying to escape for our lives, you delivered us up into the hands of the enemy. No wonder there was such strong feelings among the survivors there at the rivers of Babylon. No wonder there was no love loss here. This, what was Edom guilty of? You were kicking a man when he was down. And instead of helping a brother, you hurt me as if I were an enemy. You know, as I was pondering this, trying to imagine what, would I ever do something like that? What would it feel like to be called out for that kind of opposition to someone you should have been helping instead? And uh, an experience was popped back into my head that I hadn't thought about in decades. It was such a small thing on my mission, but it hurt my heart. And having the Spirit remind me of it brought the pain back all over again. I was on the west coast of Puerto Rico, and it, was, it would rain almost every day. And we're talking tropical rainstorm. And we were in a, I was in a car area. I was in a car. I wasn't driving at this point. I was in the passenger seat. And we were on the freeway, and it was going slow. Uh, must have been an accident, probably caused by the rain, because it was just the floods of Egypt, like uh, Amos was talking about. Well, there was the floods of Puerto Rico. And as we were getting closer, I saw a car pulled off on the side of the road, and this poor Puerto Rican was trying to change a tire in the, in the, in the deluge. I mean, it was a flood of Noah 
like proportions. That's what it felt like. And I just looked at him as he was drenched to the bone. And I remember thinking as an immature 20-year-old that it was kind of funny. That there he was just out there in the rain. And what a horrible time. Like, what kind of an idiot would choose this time to get, you know, a time like this to have a flat tire? As if he chose it. But I just thought it was so, that's such an irony to be just stuck out there in the rain that as we inched by, and there he was with his uh, jack and, and his tire irons, I pulled out my camera that I always had handy and just thought, I just want to kind of capture this moment. That this, this is life in the mission field. And so as we were going past him pretty slow, I turned and snapped a picture. Right as this drenched, waterlogged Puerto Rican turned right into the camera. And I felt horrible that he'd seen me, seen him. And instead of pulling over and doing something to help, I just took picture of him in his difficult circumstance. I still feel guilty about that. I, I didn't hurt, or did I? Was I rejoicing in his suffering? I certainly didn't pull over and do anything to help. That's probably why in a later area, during a similar downpour, when our car had barely made it through a puddle that kept getting deeper and deeper, you could hear the sizzling as the water got up into the engine block. There were cars that were stalling out in that puddle left and right. And so maybe by way of penitence, or penance, I should say, we pulled over, my companion and I, and there in the pouring rain, with water up to our knees, we pushed car after car after car out of the puddle, just trying to help. That's a better memory than the other one. Edom, you had the chance to help, and you didn't. You weren't your brother's keeper when you could have been. And if you've ever had experiences where you look back and think, I could have been kinder, I hope it motivates us to be better in the future. Just a few more verses in this little book, verse 15 and 16. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. There is the eye for an eye version of the golden rule. You're going to get what you gave, and so watch out for it. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, the mountain of the Lord, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Oh, they'll tear down your mountain. You've been doing nothing on ours. Yea, they shall drink and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. Nothing left of the Edomites. No grapes to glean. No riches to rob. Nothing left to plunder. But, verse 17, upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. Mount Zion, not, not Mount Esau. Leave that area. Come to this one. Come back into the covenant, Esau. Reclaim your birthright. 
There on Mount Zion shall be deliverance. There shall be holiness. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Instead of Esau trying to come and take over for Jacob, this is Jacob receiving into this expanded promised land all that the Edomites considered theirs. But Mount Zion is deliverance because Mount Zion is holiness? That's important. To understand that as far as God is concerned, holiness and deliverance are synonymous. Because it's only through His holiness that we can be delivered from our lack thereof. If they finally turn things around, then deliverance will come. Meanwhile, what happens to the Edomites? Verse 18, The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. I mean, that's a lot like Malachi's final warning, that the proud will be as stubble, that the anger of the Lord will be kindled against them. It will go forth like fire. That's how the allegory of the olive tree ends. Once we've changed, fixed all the fruit, right? Uh, redeemed all these trees and then gathered the righteous harvest. All that's left is to burn down the vineyard. Clear things ready for new planting. That's what you do at the end of a harvest in the ancient world. Uh, even in the Doctrine and Covenants, when it, early on it says the field is white already to harvest, but then later on it says the field is white already to be burned. Oh, harvest is past. We're ready for the next stage. And the stubble is all that's left. It's a great word, visual aid here. When you think about your, your beard, if you haven't shaved in a while and it's just stubble, well, imagine looking at a field as if it were the face of the planet, and you've already harvested the good grain. So all that's left are the, is the bottom of the stalks. Yes, there's the, the stubble on the earth. And it will be burned, preparing for the next year's planting. Then verse 19 and 20. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau. They of the plain, the Philistines. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. Now don't worry, there's no geography test at the end of this lesson. But that'd be a good place to have one. What he's describing are all of these surrounding territories, non-Israel, becoming part of Israel. You see, Edom is to the southeast of Israel. So if you're living in the south, you possess Mount Esau as well. There's that mountain again. Uh, if you're in the plain on the west, the Shephelah, then you'll possess where the Philistines lived because that's their area. Ephraim and Samaria, there's the middle, but that's kind of heart and soul of the promised land. That'll be possessed by the Israelites as well. Benjamin possesses Gilead. Gilead's on the east side of, it, of the Jordan River. But it's this expansion. When he mentions Zarephath, oh, we do know that one, right? The widow of Zarephath outside of Israel, but Elijah took care of her. This is the kingdoms of the world becoming the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. This is the expansion of the promised land to take in anyone who will come to God to receive his promises. Anyone that will make promises to him and keep them. There's a beautiful sense in those verses that there's no more enemies here. All there is are our friends. In fact, all there is is family. Once we can get past those divides of Esau and Jacob, or Ishmael and Isaac, or 
Cain and Abel, or any of the above, that's where I see the last verse, this grand finale of Obadiah coming in. Because verse 21 speaks of saviors. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. There's those two mountains side by side. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now there's a lot that could be said about that final verse of Obadiah. Though ironically, we Latter-day Saints seem to be the only ones saying anything about it at all. <laughs> now I can't blame those of other faiths that don't see much there. Because if you confine yourself to context, maybe that's all it is, is kind of the grand finale of a, of a word of warning against the Edomites, saying you're going to be consumed by the Babylonian destruction yourself, and so quit neener neenering us, it's going to come back to bite you. In fact, when all is said and done, the victorious will once again ascend Mount Zion and pass judgment and condemn you, Mount Esau. And the kingdom will revert back to the God of Israel, Jacob that is, not Esau. Because some translations render Savior simply, oh, like Redeemer or Deliverer, or flip it around, one who is redeemed, one who is delivered, like the victorious ones. Once we're delivered from Babylon and we come back to our promised land, oh, you're not going to be here to get in our way. There'll be nothing left of you. There's something left of us. So how's that for final vindication? Big brother. Is, it, is that all it is? Especially since we've seen places where, yeah, a lot of friction, a lot of conflict between these kingdoms, but also meant to be reconciled. We're brothers after all, Jacob and Esau. They reconciled by the end of their lives. Why can't their descendants? That's where I'm so grateful for what Latter-day Saints see in verse 21, because of the theology of the restoration. First of all, we can see, I mean, in some ways it reminds me of Ezekiel 37, where, yes, we can see the contextual prophecy that northern and southern kingdoms will come back together again. Israel and Judah will reunite, just like two sticks becoming one in your hand. Wonderful. But we also know that there's so much more to that prophecy than just that. Same with this. Uh, it even makes me wonder, could we see an angle of Western and Eastern kingdoms coming together? Not just you know, Israel and Judah, North-South reuniting, but East-West Israel and Edom coming together. Jacob and Esau reunited there because they've, they've sent saviors, ambassadors, were trying to come together again. But also, because of the theology of the temple, we know what Mount Zion is really all about because we're building those mountains everywhere we can. And as we ascend the hill of the Lord and come to kind of flow uphill back to the mountain of the Lord, then what is Mount Zion and what happens there where we can become saviors? Now notice it's a lowercase s, saviors. The kingdom is still the Lord's and that's a capital L for him. I sometimes worry that our evangelical friends especially accuse us of blasphemy when we think that we can become at all like our Father in heaven. And so this verse is always, to me, a gentle reminder. Well, we'll, we'll always stay the lowercase. God will always be capitalized. Uh, I actually had a, a talk with one uh, evangelical friend that was scandalized by the thought of our divine potential. And so I asked him, well, 
have you been saved? And he's like, well, that's the question we usually ask you. I'm like, I know. I thought I beat you to it. Uh, I know your answer already is yes. And so it is for me. We're all saved by Christ. But my question for you is, what does that saving consist of? What does it mean when Jesus saves you? What does that kind of look like on the day-to-day? And the more we discussed it, we finally agreed it looks a lot like him making us into someone more like him. And he was okay with that definition. And so then I asked him, so when does Jesus stop saving you? And that was blasphemous to him too, as, it, as I intended it to be. And he said, he'll never stop saving me. Agreed. But if Jesus saving us means he makes us more like him, and if he never stops saving us, then he never stops making us more like him. He never stops improving us and giving us, allowing us to partake of the divine nature. That sounds a lot like the doctrine of eternal progression to me. Not that we ever usurp him. We don't ever leapfrog the Lord. But the fact that he reserves space on his throne for us, that's the book of Revelation. He wants us to join him, not, not to overcome him, but to become like him. So with that in mind, the best place for that to happen is the Mount Zion also, because that's where we can become lowercase saviors as we work in conjunction with the capital S Savior himself. As, as has been said by prophets and apostles in the past, nowhere do we, do, do we come closer to the saving work of Jesus Christ than what we do in the temple. Because in the temple, we, we can be we can be vicarious representatives of other people. We can do for other people what they couldn't do for themselves by stepping into their shoes and helping them receive saving ordinances. What did Jesus do in Gethsemane and on Calvary? He took our place. That was a vicarious substitution whereby he could overcome our, our sins and our death. And that's what we're offering people in the temple. I will become you so that I can help you overcome sin and death through the Savior, capital S, Jesus Christ. I will perform saving ordinances so that you can accept them if you choose. So that any separation from you, between you and God can be washed away. And in fact, any separation between you and your family can disappear as well. Now are we back to Jacob and Esau? Now are we back to the book of Obadiah? Because if I can become a savior on Mount Zion, then bygones can be bygones. And Esau and Jacob can be friends again. As can Isaac and Ishmael. As can Cain and Abel. As can we all. I'm so grateful for the ordinances of the temple and for the opportunity not just to receive them myself, but to allow others to receive them as well. It's my chance to join the Lord in his work and his glory. It's my chance to become a lowercase s savior. And what better place to do it than in Mount Zion? Remember what we saw earlier, and we saw it again here in this final verse. We got two mountains to choose from. Mount Zion, Mount Esau. I guess we're back in the valley of decision, aren't we? With a mountain on either side. Who will we choose? Will we choose Esau or Jacob? Will we choose 
birthright or bowl of pottage. The first valley of decision we were looking upward, trying to heal our divides vertically and connect back to God. But this valley between Mount Esau and Mount Zion, Mount Israel, Mount Jacob, is meant to heal horizontal divides as well. Because am I my brother's keeper? I am. And thanks to my capital B brother, who keeps us all, we can all ascend the hill of the Lord, the mountain of God, Mount Zion itself, and become in our small way saviors of humanity there.